The Science of Spiritual Medicine, Orthodox Psychotherapy in Action, written by Metropolitan of Nafaktos Hirotheus Vlakos, published by Birth of the Theotokos Monastery. Dedicated to the late Archimandridi Epiphaninos Theodoropoulos, who healed many Christians and is remembered as a wise and holy priest, with gratitude for his unshakable love for God and unfailing affection. Introduction The book Orthodox Psychotherapy, subtitled The Science of the Fathers, was published in Greek in 1986. Since then it has been reprinted nine times and translated into many languages. Because a great deal of discussion and interest was provoked by the book, it was followed by two further books in Greek entitled Therapeutic Treatment and Discussions on Orthodox Psychotherapy, which analyzed various themes in the first book in greater detail. It has been considered necessary to combine therapeutic treatment and discussions on orthodox psychotherapy, neither of which has been translated into English, into a single book called The Science of Spiritual Medicine. The chapters have been reorganized, and I have also made various additions and modifications in order to make them more helpful for people today. The present book is therefore a continuation of orthodox psychotherapy. Whereas orthodox psychotherapy sets out the teaching of the fathers of the church on the orthodox church as a spiritual hospital where man is healed of his spiritual sickness, the science of spiritual medicine deals with the practical aspect. It is about orthodox psychotherapy in action. It should be stressed that man is healed of his spiritual illnesses within the church, which is the body of Christ, a community of deification and the gospel of the kingdom. This healing is not some sort of theoretical system, but the action of the church. It is achieved by participation in the sacraments and by following the church's ascetic and niptic tradition. The three basic sacraments are baptism, which is the introductory sacrament, chrismation, through which we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the divine Eucharist, by which we partake of the body and blood of Christ, as well as all the other sacraments. The whole of the church's life belongs in this perspective. When we speak of the church's ascetic and niptic tradition, we are referring to our effort to practice Christ's commandments in our everyday life and to follow in its entirety the method analyzed by the fathers of the church. Through this method, by the grace of God and our own endeavor, we cleanse our noose from thoughts and fantasies, transform our passions, in other words, the powers of our soul, and acquire communion with God. If every branch of knowledge inevitably includes both theory and practice, the same is true of our Orthodox tradition. The present book makes the issues discussed in the first book, Orthodox Psychotherapy, even more practical. I think it is necessary here to emphasize an important point that defines all my thinking and my pastoral ministry and forms the context in which the subsequent chapters of the book ought to be read. Man is made up of soul and body, and there is mutual interaction between them, particularly in his fallen state. The passions of the soul also act upon the body, and the bodily passions influence the soul, 
and every aspect of human behavior. In addition, various biochemical processes take place within the body and the brain which affect man's psychological world. A human being is not an autonomous entity, but a person who relates to God, other people, society, and the environment. When these relationships are disturbed, this has consequences for the person on the spiritual, psychological, and physical level. The devil also influences human beings in various ways, and this demonic activity is resisted by means of man's free will, which is strengthened by the grace of Christ. Some so-called psychological problems are due to biological or neurological causes, others to spiritual causes, the loss of a person's relationship with God, and others to demonic activity. These factors also influence one another. It is important for someone to be able to discern these causes, to see the mutual interaction between them, and to take steps to heal people. When Father Paisios encountered such cases, he would sometimes say, what is needed is prayer and the spiritual life within the church. At other times, he would recommend, go to the doctor. And sometimes he used to state categorically, the child needs help from a saint. In other words, he urged them to visit places where the relics of saints are kept so that the demons would go away. There is a scriptural basis for this distinction, as is clear from the occasions when people who were moonstruck were healed. Those referred to as moonstruck were people with epilepsy, whose illness was due to organic damage to the brain and who acted in a, in a particular way. In those days, this was regarded as due to the influence of the moon, so such people were called moonstruck. Sometimes those possessed by evil spirits were also referred to as moonstruck. According to St. John Chrysostom, the moon has no effect in these cases, but the devil in his wickedness creates this impression by attacking people according to the phase of the moon. St. Matthew the Evangelist uses the word moonstruck in both these senses. In one passage, recording the healing of someone possessed by a devil, he writes, There came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, moonstruck, and sore vexed. Because Christ knew that this was the work of demons, he rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Here someone regarded as moonstruck was possessed by an evil spirit. Elsewhere, the same evangelist gives another meaning to the word moonstruck. He writes, And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, moonstruck, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. A very clear distinction is made here between those possessed by evil spirits, the moonstruck, and the paralyzed, which is why the word and is inserted between each category of people. In this case, the moonstruck are not possessed by demons, but suffer from what we nowadays refer to as epilepsy. They are epileptics with a disorder of the nervous system, those possessed by evil spirits have been overpowered by the devil. 
and those that had the palsy are suffering from physical illnesses. The difference is very clear. These clarifications are essential to enable us to distinguish between what is spiritual and what is physical, and to prevent us attributing to the devil something that is a physical illness, or ascribing something demonic to those who are physically sick. Thus we neither reject medical science and its work and the biological functions of the human organism, nor do we overlook spiritual illnesses and their causes, which subsequently create physical disorders as well. What is written in this book refers mainly to spiritual problems that concern human beings in connection with their communion with God, and not to neurotic or psychotic conditions. I pray that those who read this book may benefit from it, so that God may be glorified. Written in Nafaktos on the 30th of June, 2008, the Feast of the Holy Apostles, signed the Metropolitan of Nafaktos Herothius. Part 1. Orthodox and Humanistic Psychotherapy Opening Remarks After the publication of the book Orthodox Psychotherapy, which came as a surprise in church circles on account of its title and content, and was the subject of many discussions, both private and public, spoken and in writing, there was a need to write various articles to explain the various views put forward in the book. Some of these pieces are published in the first part of the present book. They describe the book Orthodox Psychotherapy and the discussion that ensued on my basic views, as well as providing further analysis of the terms used in that book. Thus, readers will be able to discover what orthodox psychotherapy is and how it differs from humanistic psychotherapy. They will discern the meaning of the soul psyche, according to the orthodox church and according to secular psychology and psychotherapy. They will see what the orthodox tradition understands by the noose and whether orthodox theology, which is concerned with healing human beings, can be described as a science in the strict sense of the word, and how orthodox theology has distinctly therapeutic elements. This clarification will help the reader to a better understanding of the subsequent sections of this book. Chapter 1, The Science of Spiritual Medicine An important difference between the Orthodox Church and the Western Christian Confessions is that the basis of the Orthodox tradition is therapeutic. This means that, whereas Western Christianity sees sin in terms of legal and ethical processes and phraseology, the Orthodox Church, as expressed in Holy Scripture and the tradition of the Fathers, looks at sin from a medical perspective. In other words, it regards sin as an illness of man after his departure from God. Healing is therefore required. Thus the aim of Christ's incarnation was not to propitiate divine righteousness, as Western theologians suppose, but to heal human beings, so that self-love could become selfless love, love for God and other people. God is not a spiritual prosecutor, but a physician who heals man. We encounter this not only in Holy Scripture and in the works of the Holy Fathers, but in all the liturgical texts of the Church. St. Gregory the Theologian's teaching is well known, that Christ, through his incarnation, assumed the whole nature 
the whole of human nature in order to heal it, because what is not assumed is not cured. A significant phrase that demonstrates this whole therapeutic task of the Church has been used as the title of this chapter and this book, The Science of Spiritual Medicine. This is a phrase found in Canon 102 of the Quinisext Ecumenical Council. It shows that the whole of life within the Church and all our efforts to follow Christ and to be united with Him are a form of medicine, but spiritual medicine, which is different from ordinary medical treatment of the body and works primarily within the soul through the action of the Holy Spirit. Since this spiritual medicine is practiced seriously, responsibly, and with spiritual principles, it is referred to as a science. After noting a few points about the name of the Quinisext Ecumenical Council, I shall analyze Canon 102 of the Council. One point one, the Quinisext Ecumenical Council. The word Quinisext is a combination of two Latin words meaning fifth and sixth. It was not a new ecumenical council, but the continuation of the fifth and sixth ecumenical councils. The fifth ecumenical council was convened in 553 under the Emperor Justinian II in order to deal with issues arising after the fourth ecumenical council. In particular, the Fourth Ecumenical Council conf confronted both Monophysitism and Nestorianism and laid down the doctrine that the two natures, divine and human, were united in the person of Christ unconfusedly, immutably, indivisibly, and inseparably. After the Fourth Ecumenical Council, however, three documents appeared, called chapters, written by three bishops. Theodore of Mopsutia, Theodoret of Cyrus, and Ibis of Edessa. The Fifth Ecumenical Council condemned these three chapters. This council, however, did not issue canons. The Sixth Ecumenical Council met in 681, again in Constantinople, under the Emperor Constantine Pogonados, and dealt with the heresy of Mono. Theolitism and monoenergetism, which asserted that in Christ there were not two wills, a human will and a divine will, but only one. This ecumenical council declared that Christ had two natural energies and two natural wills, which were not contrary to one another, but the human will followed the divine will and did not resist or contend, but was subject to the divine will. This council, like the previous one, did not issue canons. It should be mentioned that the decisions of ecumenical councils that refer to issues of faith concerning Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father, in other words, the Holy Trinity, and the Church are called dogmas, whereas decisions of ecumenical councils that deal with administrative and pastoral matters relating to local churches and the Orthodox Church in general are called canons. As the Fifth and Sixth Ecumenical Councils had not drawn up canons related, relating to the administration of the Church and the pastoral guidance of Christians, the so-called Quinisext Fifth-Sixth Ecumenical Council convened in Constantinople in 692 
under the Emperor Justinian II. It is not regarded as a new ecumenical council, but as a continuation of the fifth and sixth ecumenical councils. Because this council was convened in the great hall of the palace, which had a dome, trulos in Greek, it was also called the council in trulo or trulo. The Quinisext Ecumenical Council in Trullo issued 102 canons referring to the administration of the Church and the pastoral guidance of Christians. Its first canon confirmed all the canons of the previous ecumenical councils, and its second canon confirmed the apostolic canons, the canons of the local councils, and the canonical decisions of the Fathers. The final canon, Canon 102, is decisive. Whereas the preceding canons settle various ecclesiastical, administrative, and pastoral issues relating to the unity of the Church and the slips and transgressions of Christians, the final canon defines the healing ministry that ought to be exercised. It indicates the method for dealing with various problems in ecclesiastical life. Thus, this canon forms the basis for all the other canons and is therefore significant. 1.2 The Text of Canon 102 The text of this important canon is set out below. Those who have received from God the power to loose and bind ought to consider the quality of the sin and the readiness of the sinner for conversion and to apply treatment suitable for the illness, lest they should fail in regard to the salvation of the sick person by using means that are disproportionate to the case. For the disease of sin is not simple, but various and of many kinds, and it sprouts many harmful offshoots, from which evil is diffused far and wide, and it proceeds further until it is checked by the power of the healer. Therefore he who practices the science of spiritual medicine ought first of all to consider the disposition of him who has sinned, and to see whether he tends to health, or on the contrary, makes the disease worse by his own behavior, and how he copes with the treatment as it proceeds, and whether perhaps he resists the physician and the wound in the soul is increased by the application of the medicaments that are put on it. Then let him, the spiritual father, grant him mercy as is appropriate. For the whole purpose of God and of him who has been entrusted with pastoral authority is to lead back the wandering sheep and to cure him if he has been wounded by the serpent, and neither to cast him down into the precipice of despair, nor to loosen the rein so much that he begins to live in dissolution and contempt, but in some other way, either by means of the more severe and astringent medicines, or by gentler and milder ones, to resist this sickness and to struggle to heal the wound, as he tests the fruits of his repentance and wisely guides the man who is called to heavenly splendor. For we ought to know both ways, namely what pertains to strictness and what pertains to custom, and to follow custom in the case of those who have not accepted the highest interpretation in the form in which it was received, as St. Basil teaches us. 1.3 Analysis of Canon 102 Reading the text of the canon leaves no room for any other interpretation or explanation but shows the therapeutic character of the sacred canons and the Church's wider pastoral ministry. 
Nevertheless, a few phrases from the canon will be set out under various headings to enable us to penetrate more deeply into the spirit of the canon and the pastoral ministry of healing exercised by the clergy. The clergy who use the canons. The canons are used by bishops for the unity of the church and by priests for the healing of sick members of the church with the permission of the bishops. The following phrases are significant. Those who have received from God the power to loose and bind. Of him who has been entrusted with pastoral authority. Of the healer. It is clear from these phrases that the bishops are the successors of the holy apostles and have authority to forgive sins, but this authority is linked with the pastoral ministry. For that reason, they are also described as healers. Sin. In the Orthodox tradition, sin is not understood as a simple transgression or rebellion, but as an illness. Of course, Adam and Eve transgressed God's commandment in paradise and sinned. But that had spiritual repercussions for the whole human race as well. Therefore, St. Paul the Apostle says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By departing from God, human beings were deprived of seeing the glory and light of God and this is a spiritual disorder. According to the sacred canon that we are examining, sin is regarded as an illness, a wound in the soul, and a disease, and the sinner is described as the sick person. Medical terminology is used here. The canon includes a very significant phrase. For the disease of sin is not simple, but various and of many kinds, and it sprouts many harmful offshoots, from which evil is diffused far and wide. Healing. The fact that sin is regarded as an illness means healing is needed. This is brought about by the spiritual healer through the use of the sacred canons and the whole life of the church. We encounter the following phrases in the sacred canon to apply treatment suitable for the illness, whether he tends to health. These two phrases show that the pastoral ministry is linked to and identified with healing people. 1.3 continued, the aim of healing. The church's whole therapeutic method is not aimed simply at making human beings morally and socially balanced, but at reestablishing their relationship with God and with one another. This comes about through the healing of the soul's wounds and the cure of the passions. The following phrases are characteristic. Evil, sin, until it is checked by the power of the healer. To lead back the wandering sheep and to cure him if he has been wounded by the serpent. To resist the sickness and to struggle to heal the wound. All these phrases use medical terms and phraseology. The aim of treatment is man's salvation and his participation in the glory of God. This is clear from the following phrases lest they should fail, make a mistake in regard to the salvation of the sick person, and wisely guides the man who is called to heavenly splendor. Human beings are called to be led to heavenly splendor. Examination and Diagnoses In order for a doctor concerned with the body to treat a sick person, he has to examine the patient well and make a good diagnosis, and the spiritual doctor ought to do the same. In order for spiritual healing to come about, 
correct diagnosis is essential, which means that the spiritual father must carefully examine the quality of the sin and the sinner's willingness to repent. To consider the quality of the sin and the readiness of the sinner for conversion, he ought, first of all, to consider the disposition of him who has sinned and to see whether he tends to health or, on the contrary, makes the disease worse, and as he tests the fruits of his repentance. Method of healing. The spiritual doctor ought to follow the method used by doctors who treat the body, as healing is called spiritual medicine, because it is affected by the Holy Spirit. In each case, the appropriate me method is scientific, he who practices the science of spiritual medicine. For each person, the most suitable method of healing is required because disproportionate or excessive treatment can be harmful to apply treatment suitable for the illness, lest by me using means that are disproportionate to the case. Spiritual healing also presupposes spiritual medicines, which have to be administered in the appropriate way and with the appropriate measure of kindness. Whether the wound in the soul is increased by the application of the medicaments that are put on it, then let him, the spiritual father, grant him mercy, as is appropriate. Just as the doctor who treats the body uses many kinds of medicines, either bitter or mild, so the good spiritual doctor does exactly the same. He applies the appropriate medicaments for the healing of each person, because if he gave the same medicines to all, he would cause harm. But in some way or other, either by means of more severe and astringent medicines, or by gentler and milder ones, to resist this sickness and to struggle to heal the wound. It is important for the person who is spiritually sick, under the guidance of his spiritual physician, not to fall into despair or to end up in a state of contempt, and neither to cast him down into the precipice of despair nor to loosen the reins so much that he begins to live in dissolution and contempt. Every spiritually sick person needs a particular method, in addition to the general sacramental and ascetical method of our church. Basically, sometimes strictness is used and sometimes discretion. Characteristic phrases include, for we ought to know both ways, and what pertains to strictness and what pertains to custom. This canon recalls the words of St. Basil the Great, that we should apply discretion for those who do not accept strictness. To follow custom in the case of those who had not, have not accepted the highest interpretation in the form of which it was received. Obviously, when someone does not exercise the pastoral ministry well, he does harm, or on the contrary, makes the disease worse by his own behavior. It is absolutely clear that the spirit of this canon, which is the basis of all the sacred canons, is first and foremost therapeutic. The bishop or priest is a spiritual physician who heals people's illnesses through the grace of the Holy Spirit and leads them to heavenly splendor by means of repentance. Spiritual fatherhood is a complete spiritual science. This is a very characteristic phrase, the science of spiritual medicine. Chapter 2. Orthodoxy. Ideology or Therapy. Orthodox theology is the voice and the word of the Orthodox Church. Neither Orthodox theology nor the Orthodox Church is an ideology, but a means of healing. 
That is to say, the Church is a spiritual hospital, and the Orthodox theology, which is the revelation and knowledge of God, knows how to heal people. 2.1. What is Orthodoxy? The word Orthodoxy has two meanings, right doctrine about God and all the facts concerning man and his salvation, and right praise of the Holy Triune God. These two meanings are very closely linked. In order truly to sing God's praises, we must know who God is. If, for example, we are under the impression that God is not a trinity of persons, but an abstract concept or an invisible force that governs everything, then our worship will be offered to that abstract sort of God. And, as that abstract God does not exist in reality, the worship of such a God is also abstract and impersonal. In one of his homilies on the Transfiguration, St. John of Damascus states the fact that only the Orthodox celebrate and keep festivals, because festivals are closely linked with true doctrine. Who has festivals and celebrations? Who has delight and exaltation, except for those who fear the Lord and worship the Trinity? The saint goes on to emphasize, All festive gladness and joy is ours, as Orthodox Christians. Christ has made the feasts for us. They are not for the enjoyment of the ungodly. The joy and gladness of the feasts belongs to Christians, to those who truly believe, not to unbelievers. As the worship of God is closely connected with doctrine about God, the Holy Fathers made great efforts to uphold the confession of faith. When faith is distorted, so is salvation. When faith is corrupted, love, hope, and all the other evangelical virtues are corrupted too. According to St. Maximus the Confessor, faith in Christ engenders fear. Fear engenders self-control, and complete self-control gives rise to the virtues, hope, patience, and forbearance. Hope in God produces dispassion, and dispassion gives birth to love. It is obvious from this that when faith is altered, all the other virtues are immediately altered as well, and man is unable to acquire true dispassion and genuine love. St. Maximus exhorts, Let us guard the first great remedy of our salvation, which is the good inheritance of faith. He who has unadulterated, unadulterated faith in Christ possesses the sum total of all the divine gifts of grace, according to St. Maximus. Of course, being a pious Orthodox believer is not just a matter of words, but of how we live. Godliness does not lie in our words, but in our deeds, according to St. Gregory the Theologian. Preserving Persevering in the Orthodox faith gives us the possibility of being saved. Broadening the subject, we can say that Christ's commandments show us the natural and perfect way to live. When a doctor prescribes treatments, he envisions a perfect, healthy person and aims to lead the patient toward this, that state. And Christ's commandments work in the same way. The Orthodox faith shows us the way to be healed so we can attain to spiritual health and truly worship God. When faith is distorted, so are the means and methods of treatment. 
We can observe this in the different Christian confessions and in other religions. The main difference between orthodoxy and, and other confessions and religions lies in how it heals people. Orthodoxy has a complete therapeutic system. It recognizes the state of a person's health, clearly sees his wounds, and recommends the perfect therapeutic method of treatment. When the faith is changed, so is the treatment offered to people. Because they cannot be healed, they are unable to enter into a real relationship with God and communion with Him. 2.2 The Holy Fathers The Holy Fathers indicate and describe this therapeutic system. They struggled to keep the faith in order to preserve this method of treatment, which is the method by which man communes with God. This, in my opinion, is where the true value of patristic literature lies. Some years ago, the catchword was, Back to the Fathers. Having failed with our own human logic, we realized that we had to turn to the Holy Fathers. Later, however, reservations were expressed about this exhortation, as it might represent some sort of return to the past. So another slogan was devised, Forward with the Fathers. Even this, however, does not absolutely convey the truth about the Church. The catchword, Back to the Fathers, is incorrect because the Fathers are sons of the Church who attained to illumination and deification and so were able to articulate the experience of the Church. The Church gives birth to the Fathers and makes them what they are. The Fathers do not make the Church. They are, there are people today who have attained to illumination and deification and can speak about the issues that concern our contemporaries. Every patristic era is an era of the Church, or more precisely, it represents the life of the Church. As far for the slogan, as for the slogan, forward with the Fathers, perhaps it indicates human pride and the risk that the Fathers will be interpreted by unregenerate commentators who reduce patristic theology in the life of the Fathers to intellectual speculation and improvisation. The right course of action is to obey the deified fathers alive today, who are authentic bearers of the truth of the revelation preserved in the Church. Unfortunately, nowadays we witness orthodoxy being turned into an ideology. Momentous truths about life have become merely ideas among so many others, and Christianity is presented as a failure too ineffectual and feeble to respond to the demands of our age. The orthodox laity, who perceive things in an orthodox way, detest this attempt to reduce orthodoxy to an ideology unconnected with life. Many people do not view the fathers as living beings, but as museum exhibits, to the point that they study and approach the fathers sentimentally or speculatively, even those who have a Western turn of mind and way of life still study the fathers. However, as Christ stressed, neither do men put new wine into old bottles, but they put new wine into new bottles. Matthew 9.17 A person's way of thinking and outlook has to change completely if he is to taste the new wine of Christianity. This change is called repentance. No one with a rationalistic mentality or a sentimental disposition whose actions are non-orthodox or whose practices are opposed to the church can encounter the spirit 
of the Holy Fathers. Profound, as opposed to superficial, repentance will cleanse us from everything old and deliver us from the corruption of the fallen life, from all the delusions of fallen humanity. We must see the patristic writings and the books of the New Testament as therapeutic texts that heal people, but also as the fruit of healing, and not regard them as an opportunity to make an impression by exploiting the latest fashionable trend. Our, our transformation within the Orthodox Church will make us Orthodox in both faith and life. It will heal us so that we can offer true worship to God. Chapter 3. Liturgy and Non-Liturgy It has been said that man is not just a rational being, nor even a social being, but above all, a liturgical being. He was created so as to live rightly, to offer the true liturgy. We shall look more closely at this fact. 3.1. The Original Liturgy The word liturgy derives from a Greek word that literally means public service. We encounter the word with its original meaning in ancient Greece. There is another meaning, however, which we wish to use here. Liturgy can mean a well-ordered life. In modern Greek, when we say that someone works well or that a factory operates smoothly with good organization in its various sections and in the way it functions as a whole, we use a verb related to the word liturgy. In this context, liturgy conveys the meaning of good working order, a well-ordered life, genuine communication, and community. Man was made by God to live rightly, liturgically, by being truly in communion with God. The point has been made that his life should have been a continual and unbroken liturgy, a continuous, uninterrupted spiritual communion between him and God. Bishop Athanasios Jevtik Immediately after his creation, man was called to participate in the heavenly liturgy concelebrated in paradise and to minister together with the angels in the Holy Trinity. Although the actual liturgy had not yet been fully accomplished, man was at the beginning of it. By freely obeying God, he should have achieved perfect communion with him, true liturgy with him. St. Nicholas Cabasilas describes one aspect of this communion and liturgy to which man was called. We were given thought, he writes, so that we might know Christ, desire that we might run to him. We have memory to bring him to mind. All the faculties and energies of the soul must be turned towards God. In this way they are also united with each other. The natural liturgical function of the soul's energies is to turn towards Christ because man is not the prototype of Christ, but Christ is the archetype of man. Man is an image of the image. He is made in the image of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 3.2 Non-Liturgy Man failed to live rightly, liturgically. Thus he fell from good order into disorder. He fell from the liturgy of paradise into a disordered, dysfunctional, non-liturgical world. His inner world was shattered. As he lost his reference to God, he lost his inner unity. He fell from his natural state into a state contrary to nature. In this non-liturgical, dysfunctional state, his memory turns towards creation 
instead of Christ. Desire, instead of being directed towards Christ, is now directed towards sin. Anger, instead of following its natural course according to God, is directed against other people. Thus, instead of living a well-ordered life, man is in disorder. The focus of man's unity is no longer God but himself. The fall means disorder. All the faculties of the soul function unnaturally. Man is in disarray, in a non-liturgical state. As Archimandriti George, abbot of the monastery of Grigoriu on the holy mountain, notes, fallen man retains a recollection of the original liturgy lived in paradise, so a vestige of religious belief remains. Despite this, the fact is that man became so gravely ill that he could no longer function naturally and take part in that liturgy. Major therapeutic intervention was needed to cure man's powers so that they would begin to function correctly liturgically. 3.3 Sharing the Life of the Church Through the incarnation of Christ, humanity is called to return to the liturgy, to share in the life of the Church. By assuming human nature, Christ assumed all the faculties of both body and soul. Thus he cured them, because according to the teaching of St. Gregory the Theologian, what is not assumed is not cured. Christ himself becomes both the high priest and the sacrifice. He offers, is offered, and receives the sacrifice. For you are he who offers and he who is offered, he who receives and he who is distributed, Christ our God. Through man, the whole world becomes a liturgy. Now, in the era of the church, man starts to participate in the true liturgy. He escapes from the disordered state of non-liturgy, begins to function correctly, and comes to the liturgy, provided, of course, that he himself is willing and strives with the help of divine grace. Man is invited to live liturgically. How can he do this? First of all, he is called to live within the church, which is where heaven and earth meet. He is called to participate in the divine liturgy, which takes place within the church. The divine liturgy is an invitation to participate in communion with God. We are not called to attend the divine liturgy, but to participate in it, particularly in Holy Communion. Unfortunately, most people today live without the liturgy. They do not feel the need to go to church and participate in the liturgy. From the point of view of our contemporaries, who wear themselves out with social activity, who are occupied with material things and the enjoyment of material goods, the Divine Liturgy on Sunday is just a habit, something antiquated that ought to disappear because it contributes nothing to humanity. It is a custom for the elderly. Indeed, even some of those who do attend the liturgy feel that it is just something to do on Sunday. Next, the Christian is called to act rightly and truly, even when he attends the liturgy and goes to church. The Divine Liturgy is not just a duty, it is the offering of our whole life to God. By truly living the Divine Liturgy as we should, we enter into the spirit of it. The Divine Liturgy shows us the figure of Christ, the figure of the suffering Christ. Christ emptied himself and took the form of a servant. We are called to conform ourselves to the figure of Christ in the form of a servant. We need to acquire and assimilate humility, meekness, peace, sacrifice, 
and self-sacrifice. When we acquire the sacrificial and self-emptying love of Christ, we live liturgically. Even after the divine liturgy has ended, the Christian is called to live in the atmosphere of liturgy in the whole of his daily life, to act truly and correctly when faced with the problems of everyday life. Christians do not live one way in church and another way outside. Life outside the church building is a continuation of the atmosphere of the divine Eucharist inside it. The way we live throughout the week is reflected in the way we behave in church, and prayer during the divine liturgy indicates how we will live our everyday lives. If someone lives ascetically all through the week, he is able to live liturgically during the divine liturgy in church. In addition, a person has to live correctly, liturgically with regard to his own self. All the inner faculties of his soul should have Christ as their point of reference. According to the teaching of St. Maximus the Confessor, the human soul has three basic aspects. The rational aspect, the appetitive or desiring aspect, and the insensive aspect. We should introduce the corresponding virtue into each part of the soul so that all three can function properly, liturgically and in unison. St. Maximus tells us that we must bridle the soul's insensitive aspect with love, quench the appetitive aspect with self-control, and give wings to the rational aspect with prayer. Then the light of the noose will never be darkened. This is actually the ascetic method of the Church. A person must also behave correctly, liturgically, and with integrity towards others. When someone's inner world is permeated by the spirit of the Divine Liturgy, he also acts as he should outwardly towards those around him. Someone whose soul is well-balanced will also be well-balanced in his life within society. Those who truly live the liturgy do not keep anything selfishly for themselves. They offer themselves without reservation. They give everything to receive everything. They die in order to live. They offer everything in Christ and for Christ. Archimandridi George Capsanis we must learn to live rightly, liturgically, and not in disorder that is contrary to the spirit of liturgy. We must escape from this state and live the true liturgy. Those who live the liturgy are truly human, because functioning liturgically means working in accordance with the truth, and a sacrifice offered correctly truly benefits mankind. Chapter 4, St. Gregory Palamas in Our Time Although all the fathers of the Church, particularly the three great hierarchs and luminaries of the world, and the Cappadocian fathers in general, had a major impact on the formulation of Orthodox theology and have continued to influence Orthodox thought and life to this day, those who are especially relevant today are St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas. They are able to speak very clearly to our contemporaries. By saying this, I am not honoring some fathers more highly than others. I do not believe in the existence of different schools of patristic theology. I believe that the Holy Fathers, who are theologians in the highest sense, share a common teaching and a common ecclesiastical life. However, the three most recent fathers, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and St. Gregory Palamas, respond to current problems that torment people today. St. Gregory Palamas expressed 
patristic and ecclesiastical life and experience in its entirety in a difficult and troubled time. He condenses the whole of patristic thought, which is essentially the life which the Holy Spirit revealed to the saints, and develops the teaching of the Cappadocian fathers. It is significant that in the second phase of his struggle against Barlaam, he refers to them. In addition, he, sh he shares the experience of St. Simeon the New Theologian, and has a thorough understanding of St. Maximus, whose teaching, which is the teaching of the Orthodox Church, he refers to and develops. It is therefore inconceivable for an Orthodox theologian to be ignorant of the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, as Barlam's humanistic and anthropocentric theories are very prevalent in our own time, the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas is especially relevant. It can lead us out of the prison where we are confined and set us free from our Babylonian captivity. In the following pages I shall set out a few key points from St. Gregory's teaching which relate to current problems of our age. These important issues will be briefly identified without detailed explanations. 4.1 Theology and the Vision of God Barlam was a humanistic philosopher who maintained that acquiring knowledge of God was the outcome of rational processes. He considered that the philosophers were superior to the prophets, so his theology was purely cerebral, rationalistic, conjectural, and abstract. This was a serious danger to the church because it would have led it toward secularization. The same danger lurks today in many theological circles, where people believe, or at least live as though they believed, that theology is a branch of academic knowledge, the result of rational thought processes, and the product of bibliographical references. St. Gregory Palamas can respond to this situation, just as he replied to Barlam's teaching. Firstly, the saint emphasizes that pure theology is not a natural gift, but a gift of divine grace. He uses various examples to bear out this fact sensual pleasure for the purpose of procreation within lawful marriage, although God himself created. Nature cannot be called a divine gift of God, because it is carnal, natural gift, not a gift of grace. Exactly the same applies to the knowledge that comes from secular study. Even if someone makes good use of it, it is still a gift of nature, not of grace. Secular learning, philosophy, is a natural gift, not a spiritual gift, which someone can only acquire through study and reading. Our divine wisdom, however, is not a natural gift, but a gift bestowed by God on those who have purified their hearts. If this gift comes to fishermen, it makes them sons of thunder and universal preachers. If it comes to tax collectors, it creates merchants of souls. His next point is that orthodox theology is not philosophy, but above all the vision of God. There is a great difference between theologians of Barlam's kind and God's seers. There is a clear distinction between this type of theology and the vision of God. St. Gregory Palamas was able on certain conditions to call even Barlam a theologian because he spoke about God essentially as a philosopher, but he could not see, he could not call him a God's seer. Speculative, speculative theology is as different from the vision of God as knowing something is different from possessing it. Speaking about God is completely different from encountering God and communing with Him. The former is possible for anyone who has reason, skill, and knows the techniques of logical argument, 
even if his life and soul have not been purified. It is impossible, however, to be united with God and acquire spiritual knowledge of him, unless in addition to being purified by virtue, we go outside, or rather, beyond ourselves, leaving behind everything perceptible together with our ability to perceive, being lifted above all thoughts, reasoning and the knowledge gained through them, and giving ourselves over wholly to the immaterial noetic prayer, noetic energy of prayer. Thus we attain to that unknowing which lies above knowledge, and are filled with the surpassing radiance of spiritual gladness. This is a highly significant passage because it demonstrates the value of true, unerring theology. No one can attain to communion with God unless first he is cleansed, leaves behind the senses and everything they perceive, rises above reason and thoughts, and acquires the unknowing that surpasses knowledge, which is the fruit of noetic prayer. Real theology, therefore, springs from purification and theoria of God. Orthodox theology, according to the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, is theoria, the vision of God. Only those found worthy of seeing the uncreated light are able to gain true knowledge of God. He clearly states, Knowledge about God and the dogmas concerning Him, which we call theology, is also theoria. Elsewhere he writes, Theoria is different from theology, in the sense that it is possible for someone to theologize from his imagination and his reason, but real theology is theoria of God. Thus, theoria or, or vision of God is different from intellectual and philosophical pseudo-theology, whereas to speak about God with certainty is the fruit of theoria, the vision of God. This theoria and vision, and consequently this unfailing theology, are not abstract, based on conjecture and imagination, but above all, a vision that is beyond the power of human sight. The Holy Fathers are not like those who speak abstractly about God. They know by seeing what surpasses sight. They undergo a sort of negation without realizing it. Those who are granted this heavenly vision know what surpasses sight by seeing this deifying energy in the Spirit, not by means of negation. Seeing the light is a positive state, hence orthodox theology, which is the vision of the divine light, is positive. If someone with no knowledge or experience of matters of faith teaches about them, following his own ideas and attempting to demonstrate rationally the good that surpasses reason, he is obviously sunk into utter madness. As well as being senseless, he will also be counted as an enemy of God. There are also cases where people without any good deeds, who have not undergone purification, met holy men and listened to them, but subsequently followed their own ideas, rejected these holy men, and went astray through pride. All this shows that theology is primarily the result of man's healing and not an intellectual science. Only someone who has been purified, or is at least in the, in the course of being purified, can be initiated into the ineffable mysteries and great truths, receive the revelation, and subsequently pass it on to the people. Healing has to precede theology, so that the theologian can then heal others. In the orthodox patristic tradition, therefore, the theologian is associated and identified with the spiritual father. The spiritual father is the theologian par excellence, who has experienced divine things and so can guide his spiritual children without error.
4.2 Philosophy and the Knowledge of God Continuing the same theme, we shall look now at how we can acquire knowledge of God. Philosophy as pursued by Barlam and many of our contemporaries does not offer true knowledge of God but brings speculative thinkers to the point of worshipping idols. Barlam maintained that knowledge of God is not a matter of theoria of God but of man's understanding, his rational faculty. Because he claimed that we are able to acquire divine knowledge through philosophy, he ranked the prophets and apostles who saw the uncreated light below the philosophers. He alleged that the uncreated light was perceptible to the senses, created and inferior to our understanding. St. Gregory Palamas, as a bearer of the tradition and a man of revelation, asserted the opposite. In his theology, he sets out the Church's teaching that the uncreated light, the vision of God, is not merely symbolic, but sensory and, and created, nor is it inferior to human thought. It is deification. Through deification, someone is deemed worthy of seeing God. This deification is not an abstract state, but a union of man with God. In other words, the person who beholds the uncreated light sees it because he is united with God. He sees it with his inner eyes and also with his bodily eyes, which have been transformed by God's energy. Theoria of God, therefore, is the union of man with God, and this union is knowledge of God. Then a person is counted worthy of knowing God, and this revelation is beyond human knowledge and sense perception. To attain to the theoria of uncreated light, we must cut all, cut all our soul's ties with things of this world and detach ourselves from everything through keeping Christ's commandments and through the dispassion that this brings. We must go beyond all cognitive activity through fervent, sincere, and immaterial prayer. That is why a person needs first to be healed. This healing is achieved by keeping Christ's commandments and liberating the soul from its sinful attachment to created things. Man is illuminated by inapproachable radiance in sublime, unknowable union, and through this union he sees God. He becomes light and sees by means of the light, becoming light and beholding through the light. Beholding the uncreated light, he knows God, acquires knowledge of God, because then he recognizes truly that God is surpassingly radiant and beyond comprehension. St. Gregory Palamas speaks about ecstasy. The sort of ecstasy described in patristic teaching, however, has nothing to do with the ecstasy of the Pythian priestess or ecstasy in other religions. Ecstasy in the patristic sense comes about when, in prayer, the noose detaches itself from all created things, firstly from everything shameful, evil, and bad, then from neutral things. Ecstasy is, above all, withdrawal from the worldly and carnal mind. Through sincere prayer, the noose abandons all created things. This ecstasy is higher than abstract theology, theology based on conjecture, and is proper only to those who have attained dispassion. It is not union, however, unless the paraclete illuminates from on high the man sitting praying in the upper room, the highest point human nature can reach, and awaiting the promise of the Father and catches him up to theory of the light. In other words, the ecstasy which is unceasing noetic prayer, when the noose has unbroken remembrance of God and is completely detached from the passions and the world of sin, is still not union with God. The union of man with God comes about when the paraclete comes to the person who is praying and waiting for God's promise in the upper room, the highest point of man's natural possibilities, and snatches him up to the vision of uncreated light. 
Divine illumination is the sign that someone is united with God. Vision, deification, and union with God offer man spiritual knowledge of God. Through them he acquires real knowledge of him. The deifying gift of the All-Holy Spirit, which is ineffable light, transforms those who have received it into divine light. It not only fills them with eternal light, but bestows on them knowledge and life worthy of God. In this state a person acquires knowledge of God. Here we see the close link between the vision of God, deification, union with God, and knowledge of Him. They cannot be understood apart from one another. Disrupting this unity takes us further away from knowing God. Orthodox teaching on the knowledge of God is based on illumination and the revelation of God within the purified heart of man. Theoria of the uncreated light and the knowledge of God that comes from this vision do not evolve from man's rational faculty. They are not the perfection of rational nature, as Barlam asserted, but surpass reason. This knowledge is offered by God to the pure in heart. To claim that this deifying gift is a development of our rational nature goes beyond, uh, goes against the gospel of Christ. If deification were a natural gift, everyone would be a god to a greater or lesser extent. But the deified saints transcend nature. They are born of God, and God gave them the power to become children of God. 4.3 Psychoanalysis and Unification of the Soul We can observe a trend nowadays towards psychological analyses. Everything is interpreted psychologically, with man as the center of the universe and a humanistic, anthropocentric psychology has developed. Psychoanalysis is discussed as a method of exploring a person's inner world and acquiring a psychological balance. If, however, we study patristic writings in detail, we discover that they speak more about unifying the soul. Because the soul has distanced itself from God, it is inwardly fragmented and needs to be united. This subject is covered by St. Gregory Palamas in his teaching. The philosopher Barlam maintained that sanctity and perfection could not be found without logical distinction, reasoning, and analysis. He therefore advised that anyone wishing to acquire perfection and holiness needed to be taught the methods of distinction, reasoning, and analysis. St. Gregory Palamas refuted this opinion, which is a heresy of the Stoics and Pythagoreans. He teaches that we Christians do not regard the knowledge arrived at by means of words and inferences as true, but only that knowledge demonstrated by deeds and life, which is not only true, but also sure and irrefutable. He goes on to say that it is impossible for us for us even to know ourselves by means of distinctions, reasoning, and analyses, unless we free our noose from pride and evil through arduous repentance and unremitting ascases. Anyone who does not purify his noose in this way will not become aware of his own poverty, which is a good starting point for self-knowledge. This part of St. Gregory's teaching is highly significant because many people today teach that we can come to self-knowledge through self-analysis and psychoanalysis. This can, however, have terrible consequences. When someone analyzes himself, the likely result is, is schizophrenia. The ascetic method is simple. By guarding and purifying the noose, returning it to the heart through repentance and noetic prayer, and by keeping Christ's commandments, we endeavor to free it from images and from its captivity to things perceptible to the senses. We come to know ourselves through the energy of the All-Holy Spirit. 
It is only when God's grace, together with our own effort, enlightens the soul that we gain an accurate awareness of every detail of our being. The healing of our noose reveals the existence of passions. At that point, illuminated and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, we can fight against them. 4.4 Action and Hesychism The era we live in is preeminently one of external action. We are continually on the move. We indulge all our senses and in intensely cultivate our power of reasoning. We think that we, that we think that we will transform society by means of such activity. Society cannot be successfully changed, however, without our own transformation, and this cannot be achieved without the hesychistic method, which is an integral part of the Orthodox tradition. St. Gregory Palamas is first and foremost the defender of hesychism. By the grace of Christ, he fought to safeguard this method of purifying the heart and thoughts, which is an indispensable prerequisite for the knowledge of God and communion with him. In his homily on the entry of the Most Holy Mother of God, he speaks about the hesychistic life. It is significant that this saint of the Holy Mountain, speaking from his own experience, presents the All-Holy Virgin as an example of noetic Hezekiah, because through Hezekiah she attained to communion with the triune God in the Holy of Holies. He writes that we cannot reach God or commune with Him unless we are purified and leave behind everything perceptible to our senses, together with our ability to perceive and rise above thoughts, reasoning, human knowledge, and the mind itself. This is exactly what the Holy Virgin did. Seeking this communion with God, she found that Holy Hezekiah was her guide. Hezekiah when the noose and the world stand still, forgetfulness of things below, initiation into heavenly secrets, the laying aside of conceptual images for something better. This is truly something we actively do, a means of approaching theoria, or to state it more aptly, the vision of God, which is the only proof of a soul in good health. St. Gregory Palamas goes on to explain that the virtues are medicines for the soul's illnesses, the passions, but theoria is the fruit of a healthy soul, an outcome and a state that deifies. In other words, the soul is healed by means of the virtues, but once it has been healed, it is united with God through theoria, to which it is guided by the hesychistic method. It is through theoria that a person is deified, not by conjectural analogy based on reasoning and observations, but under the guidance of Hezekiah. Through this method of orthodox Hezekiah we are healed, we are set free from things below and, and turned towards God. With constant supplications and prayers, in some way we touch that blessed nature that cannot be touched. Thus the light beyond our perception and understanding is diffused ineffably within those whose hearts have been purified by holy Hezekiah, and they see God within themselves as in a mirror. The most significant points in this passage by St. Gregory Palamas are that by means of the orthodox method, which is essentially the method of noetic Hezekiah, we purify our heart and noose, and, are, and so are united with God. This is the only method of feeling our way towards God and acquiring communion with Him. The Holy Fathers, in their writings, call this state of the soul Sabbath rest. Purified by the method of sacred Hezekiah, and under its guidance, man's noose keeps the Sabbath and rests in God. St. Gregory Palamas speaks about divine rest, God's rest when he rested from all his work, and Christ's rest when he descended to hell with his soul in his divinity, 
while his body and his divinity remained in the tomb. He writes that we too ought to seek this divine rest, concentrating our noose through assiduous attention and un un uninterrupted prayer. This divine rest, God's Sabbath rest, is noetic Hezekiah. If you raise your noose above every thought, however good, and bring it completely back to yourself by means of persistent attention and unceasing prayer, you too have actually entered into the divine rest and have received the blessing of the seventh day, seeing yourself and being lifted up through yourself to the vision of God. It is significant that the saint says these things in a homily to the flock in his diocese in Thessaloniki. This means that everyone, to differing, differing degrees, can acquire experience of this divine rest. In my view, this teaching has been lost in our own day. The clear conclusion from this whole analysis is that the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas is relevant to our time and should be studied and put into practice by people today. Of course, when we refer to the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, we are in no way implying that this teaching is exclusive to this particular saint. It is the Church's teaching, which the saint expressed in his era. There are parallels between our age and St. Gregory's. Sadly, in many fields and on many levels, it is the teaching of Barlaam that prevails rather than that of St. Gregory Palamas. Now is the time to rediscover our tradition, not in the sense of rediscovering a few traditional objects or reviving traditional manners and customs, but principally by living the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas. The saints and their theology ought to be central to our teaching and our lives. In this way we shall avoid anxiety and insecurity and find inner peace. Chapter 5 Metaphysics and Theology Many of you have asked me to say a few things by way of a summary about the book Orthodox Psychotherapy, which I published two years ago. Presenting my own book is actually a very difficult task for me. I should at least be given credit for not seeking this opportunity myself. Please forgive me as well for any exaggerations in what I am about to say. I wrote this book two years ago and it provoked much discussion in Greece. A professor in Athens, an academic called John Camiris, whom everybody in Greece considers to be a top dogmatic theologian because he was a professor of dogmatics, told me that this book delivers a new message for today. I also received many letters from theologians and other academics following the publication of the book. Various reviews were published in newspapers and periodicals. I was invited to appear on television and I took part in two discussions, each lasting an hour, on this topic. I also gave talks on the subject in Athens and other cities. I mention all this to show you that the opinions in the book provoked much discussion. It was seen as a book that had something new to say for today, because until now psychological interpretations have held sway. There are many books in circulation about what Freud, Jung, and Adler and other psychotherapists say on these subjects. Many people believed that the Holy Fathers were only relevant to their own age, but the book made them realize that the Fathers are more up-to-date than contemporary psychotherapists and psychoanalysts. It was difficult for them to grasp that the Fathers studied these issues 14 or 15 centuries before modern psychotherapists. 5.1 The Central Message of the Book Orthodox Psychotherapy The fundamental message of the book is that orthodoxy has a true therapeutic method, a means of healing people. The same is true of orthodox theology. Orthodoxy and orthodox theology heal human beings. In the book I quote the view of Father John Romanides, which I share, that if Christianity had appeared in the 20th century, we might have understood it as a medical science rather than a philosophy or an ethical, social, or political system. 
Within the church, people are not categorized as moral or immoral, good or bad according to the external ethical criteria, but are divided into three broad categories. In the first category are those whose souls have not been healed. Those who are striving to be healed belong in the second category. And the third category consists of those who have been healed, who are the saints of the church. In developing this theme, I relied on the Holy Fathers who, as I mentioned, put forward many such views centuries before contemporary psychotherapists. 5.2. The Importance of the Holy Fathers It is important for us to see what the basic foundation of Orthodox theology is, because there are currently two major traditions. One relies mainly on reasoning, and is based on the metaphysics of the classical Greek philosophers, which is a mixture of fantasy, speculation, and mainly intellectual activity. This sort of theology based on metaphysics gave rise to scholasticism in the 13th and 14th centuries. Later, however, the development of the positive sciences dealt a blow to both metaphysics and philosophy. Professor John Romanides says that people in the West do not believe anymore in the metaphysics of the classical philosophers. Insofar as metaphysics and philosophy came under attack, so did the theology of the West, which was based on metaphysics. For that reason, in the West, Nietzsche and others after him reached the conclusion that God was dead. There is actually a theology of the death of God. In fact, God was dead, but it was the God of metaphysics, who is connected with fantasy and is a non-existent God. This is the first category, the first major expression of theology. The other kind of theology, orthodox theology, was expounded by the Holy Fathers of the Church. The Fathers of the Church are bearers of the tradition and revelation. They received the revelation and passed it on. The Fathers did not speak about God using their imagination and speculation, but on the basis of their experience of deification. This method is thoroughly scientific, as Professor John Romanides says. The doctor looks at the microbe through his microscope and then cures the patient. The astronomer observes the stars and then draws his con conclusions. Science on the human level includes observation and experiment. Exactly the same is true of the theology of the Holy Fathers. There is observation and experiment. 5.2 continued. First of all, there is observation, because the Holy Fathers reached deification and saw God. In Orthodox theology, deification is identified with the theoria of the uncreated light. The Fathers saw the glory of God, which is the kingdom of God and its mysteries. St. Paul the Apostle spoke about God because he had previously attained to theoria and beheld Christ in his glory. Because he had experienced theoria, he made known many mysteries in his epistles that Christ did not reveal to his apostles during his earthly life. For instance, St. Paul's theological teaching that the Church is the body of Christ is not found in the Holy Gospels. As we know, St. Paul used to persecute Christians. When Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he asked, he asked him, Why persecutest thou me? Acts 26.14 He was persecuting Christians, and Christ asked him, Why was he persecuting him? In this theoria and in other experiences, St. Paul understood that Christ is linked with the Church. Christ is the head of the Church, and the Church is the body of Christ. Exactly the same happens with all the Holy Fathers. They have personal experience of God. At the same time, there is experiment, because anyone can repeat the observations made by the saints. Anyone can follow the same method as the Fathers and end up with the same results. We owe a great debt of gratitude to the Fathers who exist to this day. 
That is why we say that the only scientific way to approach theological issues is through the saints, because the saints live the same life as the apostles and the prophets. Just as doctors understand each other very well, and one mathematician fully comprehends another, so the saints have an excellent understanding of other saints. Therefore, in writing this book, I relied on the theology and the writings of the saints of the church. 5.3. Orthodox Theology Heals Human Beings How did I come to consider to the conclusion that orthodoxy has an intensely therapeutic character? There are six points I should like to mention. The first is that when I was a student, I worked on the critical edition of the works of St. Gregory Palamas, which Professor Panayotis Christou and his colleagues were preparing. My own task was to identify the references for the quotations from St. Gregory the Theologian that St. Gregory Palamas uses. As I read, I discovered that St. Gregory the Theologian had certain views which were not just his own, but the teaching of the Holy Fathers of the Church. According to these views, hell and paradise do not exist from God's perspective, only from man's point of view. God did not create hell, because he did not make anything evil, as St. Basil the Great says. St. Gregory the Theologian states that the second coming God will love all human beings, just as the sun rises now upon the righteous and the unrighteous, so then he will send his grace to everyone, to sinners as well as the just. Sinners, however, as they will not have acquired spiritual sight, will feel the, the caustic property of the light, and it will burn them. This will be their hell. They will be aware of God as fire, and that will be hell, whereas the righteous, having been inwardly purified, will see God as light, which will be paradise. This is what St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Palamas, among others, say. In fact, St. Gregory Palamas says that this happens in the Divine Eucharist. Those who have been purified receive the body and blood of Christ, and this is light and life for them. But to those who have not been purified, Holy Communion is fire. It will be the same at the Second Coming. That is why in Orthodox icons of the Second Coming, we see that the light that illumines the righteous comes from the throne of God, but so does the river of fire that burns up sinners. The problem facing us is not whether we will see God at the Second Coming, but whether God will be light for us and not fire. Thus, healing is needed. According to Orthodox teaching, the priest does not issue tickets for paradise, but heals people through the sacraments and the whole tradition of the Church, so that when they see God, he may be light and paradise for them. It became clear to me that the work of priests is mainly therapeutic. The priest may also do social work and many other tasks within the Church, but all such work must be incorporated into the therapeutic method by which human beings are led to deification. The second factor that brought me to these conclusions is that I have been a priest for about 17 years. That was in 1988, footnote, translator's note reads. As a spiritual father, I have heard many confessions and have discovered that there are many people who make their confession but do the same things again a few days later. I see that many people belong to the church, come to church services, and say that they believe in God, but when they have a problem, they, um, they may also turn to those who practice magic. They are Christians on the surface, but basically they are not being healed. I was concerned about this and wanted to know what was going wrong. Why do people make their confession then commit the same sin again? As I studied the works of the Holy Fathers, I found that man's basic problem is not stealing, lying, and so on, but mainly that his noose is sick. 
Man's noose, as St. John of Damascus says, is the eye of the soul. He also says that when God created man's soul, he made it rational and noetic. According to the teaching of the fathers of the church, reason and noose are two parallel energies of the soul. In the teaching of Holy Scripture, the noose is identified with the heart. Thus the Lord said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8 And in St. Luke's Gospel it says, Then opened he their understanding, noose, that they might understand the Scriptures. Luke 24.45 The noose is the core of man's existence. It is there that God is revealed, whereas reason merely articulates the experience of the noose. We could say, for example, that our reason is the computer and our heart or noose is the person who operates it. That gives a very rough idea. 5.3 continued. So I realized that human beings sin and repeat the same passions because their noose is sick. First their noose is darkened, then they sin. St. Gregory Palamas, following St. Maximus the Confessor, says that a noose far from God is either like a demon or a beast. It becomes demonic through pride and bestial through the energies of the desiring and insensitive aspects of the soul. Once the noose is healed, a person stops doing these things that create problems, including social problems. As the Apostle Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 When the Holy Spirit is in our heart, there are no problems with carnal desires or with any of the other states that are symptomatic of the carnal man who lives without the energy of the All-Holy Spirit. In the teaching of the Holy Fathers, we see clearly that when the grace of Christ, the grace of God acts in someone and he is counted worthy of seeing the uncreated light, even the energies of his body are suspended. The energies of the soul are not suspended, but the energies of the body are. Moses stayed forty days and forty nights on Mount Sinai and had no need to eat, drink, or sleep. The third factor that helped me was that St. Maximus the Confessor's centuries on love. I read these texts to see exactly what love is, because much is said about it nowadays. I thought I would find that love is simply a matter of ethical commandments. Certainly I found such expressions there, but to my great surprise I discovered that St. Maximus, the Confessor's Four Centuries on Love, set out the teaching that real love is the fruit of dispassion. St. Maximus examines what the passions are and how they de develop. He sets out the fact that the passions result from and are engendered by the darkening of the noose, and so he analyzes what the noose is, how it is darkened, and how it is healed. He speaks more about the noose, passions, and dispassion than about love itself, because he clearly recognizes that real love springs from an illumined noose and dispassion in the full ascetic and orthodox sense of the word. I realize that St. Maximus the Confessor, one of the greatest theologians of the Church, does not speak philosophically but practices a method of healing as he believes this is the Church, the Church's fundamental task. The fourth reason why I reached this conclusion is that I spent many years studying exactly what the dogmas of the Church are. There is a widespread impression that the Church's dogmas are the philosophy formulated by the Holy Fathers, or even external the theoretical truths that Christians have to accept intellectually. Dogmas, however, are an expression of the life of the Church. The Holy Fathers were healed. They participated in God and discovered true theology. Then, as there were heretics who disputed this theology, they set it out in the form of definitions so as to safeguard it 
and essentially to safeguard man's healing. Dogmas are therefore an expression of healing and teach us how to heal. Just as a doctor's instructions presuppose the existence of good health and help the patient to reach that state, and just as the medicines prescribed by the doctor heal the patient, so the dogmas heal people. The Holy Fathers found fought hard to safeguard the truth, because when the truth is distorted, healing ceases too. St. Athanasius the Great says that if Christ were not the uncreated word, God, he could not save us. Also the Fathers say that if the two natures were not united hypostatically in Christ, immutably, unconfusedly, indivisibly, and inseparably, if Christ did not assume the whole of human nature, we would remain unhealed. As St. Gregory the Theologian says, and St. John of Damascus repeats, what is not assumed is not cured. All the dogmas are based on healing and on the stages of spiritual perfection, purification, illumination, and deification. The council in the time of St. Gregory Palamas, which spoke about hesychism, underpins all the ecumenical councils. The Holy Fathers described and pointed out to us the path that we should follow to arrive at sanctity. This path leads us through the three stages of spiritual perfection, purification of the heart, illumination of the noose, and man's deification. We see these stages in Holy Scripture, in the teaching of St. Dionysius the Areopagite, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory Palamas, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and other fathers. We also see them in the Church's liturgical tradition. The catechumens purified their heart through catechism, particularly by means of exorcisms. Then, through holy baptism and chrismation, they found the center of the soul, the noose. They received the Holy Spirit, and their noose was enlightened, which is why those approaching baptism were referred to as preparing for illumination. Through holy baptism and chrismation, the noose is illumined, which means that the heart begins to pray noetically. Afterwards, they proceeded to the holy altar and partook of the body and blood of Christ. 5.3 continued. A fifth point which follows on from the previous one is that when I studied the various Christian confessions, I saw that dogmatic differences certainly exist, but they are just the visible tip of the iceberg. We discovered that the essential difference lies in the way in which healing is achieved. The Protestants have no therapeutic method at all because they think that when someone believes in God, he is automatically reborn and saved. The Roman Catholics have a method of healing but it is very external. A person has to do good works, visit the Holy Land, contribute money to the poor and the church, meditate, and so on. Roman Catholic monks practice obedience, but this obedience has more in common with discipline, like the obedience of soldiers to their officers in the army. Neither Roman Catholics nor Protestants know the hesychistic, niptic tradition of the church. In the Orthodox Church, however, there is a complete therapeutic method. The Orthodox Church knows exactly what good health is. Being healthy means attaining to deification. It knows exactly what illness is, namely the darkening of the noose. It is also very well aware of how to lead people from sickness to health, which is deification. Today, many people are amazed when they study Orthodox teaching because they never imagined that such teaching existed in the writings of the Holy Fathers. In the West, Freud, Jung, and others who were concerned with man's inner world dominated because this complete therapeutic method of the fathers did not exist there. In the East, however, Orthodox monks 
know very well how to be healed inwardly and how to heal others. The sixth factor that led to this conclusion is my close contact with the saintly ascetics of the Holy Mountain and also with others outside the Holy Mountain who strive to live according to the Orthodox tradition. I am thinking particularly of Archimandriti Sofroni Sakharov, who lives now in England and who experiences and articulates the hesychistic life, which is the profoundest essence of our tradition. I have met many such people and seen the meaning of orthodoxy as its most profound. This therapeutic method of the Holy Fathers is preserved on the Holy Mountain. I should also add that the teaching of Professor John Romanides helped me. I was living in this sort of atmosphere, and when I read various writings of Professor Romanides, I discovered that they were in accord with the life of monks and expressed the Orthodox tradition. I realized that Professor Romanides had an excellent grasp on the basic message of the Holy Fathers and understood the Orthodox Church. I owe a great debt of gratitude to this professor, whom I hold in particular reverence and respect. I confess that he has influenced my thinking a lot. To all these factors should be added my study of the writings of the Holy Fathers, particularly the so-called Niptic Fathers of the Church. I was helped most of all by St. Gregory Palamas, in whose teaching I delighted from my student years onwards, thanks to Professor Paniotis Christou and by St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite who gathered the whole of patristic wisdom into his books. I can say unreservedly that I consider it a particular blessing from God that I was found worthy of knowing the great theologian of the Church, St. Gregory Palamas, and the gentlest Orthodox teacher, St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite. I saw in their writings that the hesychistic life forms the basis of the Holy Orthodox tradition. If we look more carefully at the hesychistic life, we discover that it is a therapeutic method, the Orthodox way of healing, the path of sanctification. Unfortunately, nowadays everyone talks about the fathers and reads them without being aware of the means by which someone becomes holy and comes to the point of speaking about God. This means is hesychism, which is an inseparable from and finds expression through the church's therapeutic method. I wanted through my book to draw attention to this approach used by all the saints which means progressing through the stages of spiritual perfection, purification, illumination, and deification. 5.4 Analysis of the Content of the Book All this led to me to the conclusion that orthodoxy has a therapeutic method and is similar to medical science as it heals people. The book Orthodox Psychotherapy grew out of a search for and discovery of this tradition. It is, it is divided into six chapters. In the first chapter, I explore the subject of how orthodoxy heals people and discuss what exactly is meant by illness and healing and how a person can be healed. I also say in this chapter that the theology of the Holy Fathers is first and foremost a therapeutic method in science. The second chapter is entitled The Orthodox Therapist. On the basis of the sources, particularly the writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite and other fathers, including St. John Chrysostom, I demonstrate that the basic task of the priest is to heal people. I also state that in order to be able to heal people, a person must, as far as possible, be healed himself. To become a priest, someone must first have passed through the state of, stage of purification. The third chapter is the most basic and expounds the subject of the healing of the soul. First, I discuss what exactly the soul is, how it relates to the body, what its energies are, how it becomes sick, and how it is cured. I then go on to consider the relationship between nous, heart, and reason. 
This analysis was necessary because the terminology has changed to some extent today. When we refer to the noose, we, actually, we usually think it means the faculty of reason. And when we speak about the heart, we think it means our feelings. After this analysis, I discussed the sickness and cure of the noose, the heart, and the reason. Before moving on to examine the subject of thoughts, logismo, in addition with the teaching of the Holy Fathers, I write about the origin of thoughts, the problem they create within us, and how we can be cured of them. In the fourth chapter, entitled Orthodox Pathology, I discuss the subject of the passions. I describe exactly what they are, because some people believe that the passions are energies that we acquired as a result of the fall, and which we should reject. We see in the teaching of the Holy Fathers, however, that the passions are energies of the soul which have been distorted by sin. So we do not direct our efforts towards uprooting passions, but towards transforming them. I also consider the subject of dispassion, whereas Stoic philosophy regards the mortification of the passable part of the soul as dispassion, dispassion for us orthodox means the transformation of this part of the soul, not putting it to death. The fifth chapter concerns Hezekiah as a method of healing. It explains exactly what Hezekiah and stillness is according to the orthodox teaching. As we know, Hezekiah does not mean that someone withdraws to a distant place, but that the grace of God comes into his heart. In this chapter, I describe the full significance of Hezekism. In the sixth chapter, I dis discuss the knowledge of God, as defined in accordance with the teaching of St. Isaac the Syrian and St. Gregory Palamas. There you have a brief summary of the content of Orthodox psychotherapy. Chapter 6, Humanistic and Orthodox Psychotherapy in Holy Scripture, the worship of the Church, the decisions of the ecumenical and local councils, and the teachings of the Fathers, we frequently encounter medical terminology. For instance, that Christ is a healer and physician of souls and bodies. The Church is a place of healing or a hospital. The, the, the clergy heal people through their pastoral work and so on. The niptic and hesychistic tradition of the Church, in particular, speaks about healing a person from the passions, freeing him from thoughts and his journey towards communion with God. Some aspects of the Church's healing work were emphasized in the previous chapters, and others will be stressed in the chapters that follow. Everywhere it is clear that the task of the Orthodox Church is preeminently therapeutic. The book Orthodox Psychotherapy was written from this perspective and analyzes the aim of Orthodox theology, the work of the clergy, and the method of healing human beings. The term Orthodox Psychotherapy, with certain essential preconditions, was finally accepted even by scientific experts in the West, who see the orthodox niptic tradition and ecclesiastical life from this point of view. In the West, of course, there is much discussion about psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, psychology, and psychiatry, which work on the basis of other presuppositions and have different aims from orthodox theology. For that reason, I shall attempt in the following pages to identify the relationship between humanistic and orthodox psychotherapy and the differences between them. 6.1 The Emergence of Psychotherapy The term psychotherapy was created and developed in the West. It refers to the ways in which psychologists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts treat disorders of behavior and personality, which are influenced by the ego, the unconscious, the subconscious, and have psychological and physical consequences for those suffering from them, as well as for society. They do this through the use of various psychological methods. 
In ancient times, people were treated for mental and even physical ailments by shamans, pagan priests who dealt with illness as a religious and spiritual disorder to be cured by incantations, spells, exorcisms, and ritual cleansings. In the West, especially during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, medicine was separated from metaphysics and religion, with the result that medicine became more mechanistic. The human body was regarded as a machine that had to be maintained, and the great significance of the factor of the soul in sickness and health was ignored. Psychology, psychotherapy, and psychoanalysis attempted to fill the gap thus created. Psychotherapists in the West were in some way substitute for priests and spiritual fathers and played a religious and priestly role. In a sense, therefore, psychology and psychotherapy in the West represent man's quest for a cure for his inner existential problems. They are sort of laicized secular religion. Many kinds of humanistic psychotherapy have appeared. Psychology attempted at first to separate itself from religion and acted as if it were a scientific method of treating psychological disorders. As time passed, however, experiential existential psychotherapy developed, which attempted to reconcile its relationship with religion by taking into account the neglected spiritual needs of human existence. Although psychotherapy initially defined its relationship with religion, subsequently it basically replaced it, as though it were a new religion in our secularized world. When we refer to psychotherapy in the West, we mean a, a wide range of different therapies. Psychoanalysis is regarded as originating with Freud, who developed the theory of the libido, that is to say the importance of the sexual instinct in shaping a person's life. Other associates and disciples of Freud, however, did not accept this view, including two colleagues. Adler, who assigned a decisive role in human development to the urge for social recognition, and Jung, who saw human development in terms of spiritual archetypal principles innate within man. There were also disciples of Freud, such as Fromm, who identified the social and cultural relationships within which a person lives and develops as factors contributing to the development of his personality, and Frankel, who discovered that the existential problems that are linked with the meaning of life define or heal a person. 6.1 continued. Today there are many kinds of psychotherapy, including cognitive psychotherapy, which is concerned with the healing of human thought processes, behavior psychotherapy, which aims to modify a person's behavior with the help of persuasion, therapeutic drugs, and so on, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is a combination of the former two, and existential psychotherapy, which gives meaning to a person's life. Other specialties divide psychotherapy into two basic categories, surface psychotherapies, which deal with personal disorders using external means, for example, occupational therapy, and depth psychotherapies which penetrate into a person's inner world with the help of psychoanalytical methods. Many kinds of psychotherapy developed in parallel in the West such as family therapy, music therapy, drumming therapy, art therapy, walking therapy, and so on. Pharmacopopsychotherapy, which uses medicines to treat various personality disturbances, has also evolved. Nowadays, scientific experts even talk about experiential psychotherapy, which is split into three major trends. The first trend is philosophical. It is based on existential philosophy and is called existential psychotherapy. The second trend, known as gestalt therapy, is based on holistic principles and concerns the connection between the soul psyche and the body. 
The third trend, characterized as spiritual, is what is described as transpersonal therapy, which attempts to unite with the being that transcends the person. It centers on the mystical experience that is one of the Eastern religious techniques used in meditation. This distinction between different kinds and forms of psychotherapy is not watertight, as, as in many cases there is a mutual interaction and collaboration between them. Since psychotherapy presupposes a relationship between the person giving treatment and the person receiving it, the psychotherapist uses his own inner world as a means to approach the disturbed inner world of the other person, the patient, in order to help him. For this reason, there seem to be as many psychotherapeutic techniques as there are psychotherapists. Overall, as has been written, there are more than 250 different systems of psychotherapy in the West. These include well-known systems such as behavior therapy, psychoanalysis, and humanistic psychology, as well as others using particular methods such as meditation, hypnotism, fantasy, or screaming, see the Greek scientists for peace in the Balkans, a so-called anti-psychiatry movement has also evolved. Even, even within schools of psychotherapy, following the same trend, there are many differences depending on the convictions of individual psychotherapists. There is obviously a fundamental difference between humanistic psychotherapy and the theology of the Orthodox Church, which heals human beings. Humanistic psychotherapy in all its forms is actually anthropocentric, which means that it is carried out only within human capabilities and by using a technical method for achieving psychological and social equilibrium. Healing in the Orthodox Church, by contrast, is achieved through the uncreated energies of the triune God, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within the Church, and its aim is for man to reach deification. 6.2 Orthodox Psychotherapy when analyzing orthodox teaching on man's healing, we can use the phrase orthodox psychotherapy to mean something completely different from what takes place in human psychotherapy. According to orthodox teaching, psychotherapy is exactly what the word implies, the healing of a person's soul, and in a wider sense, the healing of the whole human being. A person's soul does not consist simply of his psychological reactions to his social environment. It is the spiritual element of his, of his existence. Man, created by God in his image and likeness, has a soul and a body, which together make up one single person. The soul has three aspects or powers, the rational aspect, the appetitive or desiring aspect, and the insensitive aspect. The negative or positive way in which these powers function has consequences for the body and for creation. Also, according to another way of distinguishing the parts of the soul, it possesses a noose and free will. We link the word psychotherapy with the adjective orthodox and speak of orthodox psychotherapy because the various Christian confessions deal with these issues in a different way from the orthodox church with its theology and its whole tradition. The fact that secular psychotherapy developed in the west and was brought from here, was brought from there to the east, shows that western tradition and theology were ignorant of this spiritual element of human existence. Scholasticism, as it developed in the various schools, and was articulated by Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, a book that expresses the prevailing Roman Catholic teaching, gave priority to human reason and logic. It dealt with the issue of God logically and rationally, and spoke of ontological proofs for the existence of God. As a result, the Western Enlightenment in England, through philosophical empiricism, as well as in France and in Germany through materialism and idealism, 
denied the existence of God and metaphysics in general as a reaction against scholasticism. The moralistic approach, as cultivated by Protestants, relied on emphasizing external behavior. Protestants speak about a person being born again miraculously and immediately, without his free will playing a part, which actually introduces an element of determinism. Thus the person's inner world is left completely unhealed. In Orthodox theology, however, psychotherapy is closely connected with man's rebirth and the transformation of all the energies of his soul and body, which comes about through the grace of God, the sacraments, and asceticism within the Church. The sacraments unite the Christian with Christ. Through holy baptism, a person becomes a member of the body of Christ. Through chrismation, he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through holy communion, he is united with Christ. Also, Orthodox ascetic teaching, which is also described as niptic and hesychistic, shows the way in which human beings can share in the uncreated grace of God. The sacraments without asceticism constitute a mechanistic and magical perception of the Christian life, whereas asceticism without the sacraments represents a sort of moralism and pietism. The term psychotherapy, although used by modern psychotherapists in the West, can be theologically acceptable when it is seen in an orthodox perspective and is used to denote the healing of the human soul. Although the fathers did not use this term, that does not mean that we cannot use it, provided we do not stray from orthodox teaching. The Holy Fathers did not hesitate to use terms that had a different meaning in their time, but they charged them with a new significance. For instance, in the era of the Cappadocian Fathers, the Greek word for person meant mask or persona, and could easily serve the purpose of the heretical teaching of Sabellios. The Holy Fathers, however, gave substance to the word person and used it to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, refuting at the same time the heretical teaching of Sabellius. The problem does not lie in the terms themselves, but in their significance. Orthodox theology is traditional, but not conservative. We are well aware that tradition, which has been passed down to the present day in dynamic form, is not the same thing as conservatism, which is restricted to the mechanical and external repetition of the words of the past. Thus, the, express, the expression orthodox psychotherapy can, can be interpreted as the therapeutic method of the fathers. In addition, the term psychotherapy is not restricted to the soul, but includes the body as well, because there is a very close link between the soul and the body. It goes beyond the purification of the heart from passions, but is wider in scope. We know that patristic theology refers to illumination, enlightenment, the vision of God, and the constant vision of God. Perfection is unending, so man continuously receives healing. For a person to be healed, his noose has to be revealed. It must have unceasing remembrance of God and become heaven in his heart. The noose has to be appropriately adjusted. So I do not regard healing as deliverance from a few external actions and gross passions, the Church's experience has shown that the more someone sees God with a pure noose, the more imp impure he feels. Also, since the view that Orthodox theology is a therapeutic science may perhaps be misinterpreted as allegedly overlooking the fact that Orthodoxy is a re revealed faith, some explanations are required. 6.2 continued. Christianity is God's revelation to humankind. 
It is revealed faith. I frequently stress this truth in my book Orthodox Psychotherapy, as well as the fact that the dogmas of the Church, which are basically de definitions marking the boundaries between life and death, are linked with salvation and true healing. If the dogmas are altered, the possibility of salvation, of healing, is immediately impaired. Faith, however, is not something abstract, nor simply a system of facts that has to be accepted externally and mechanically. Such acceptance is necessary, but it is not enough on its own. The revelation is offered to the person who has been healed. The holy apostles prepared for three years to receive all truth on the day of Pentecost. Faith is closely linked with healing, because without healing, even the demons have an external faith in God, including faith in the Holy Trinity. Faith is inseparably linked with life, and if someone believes in God, he ought to be renewed and reborn. If a patient believes in the doctor, he follows the doctor's instructions in order to be healed. Therefore, the Holy Fathers stress that we should strive to progress from the faith that comes from hearing, simple faith, to the faith based on theoria, in other words, to communion with God. This journey from simple faith to perfect faith depends on our being healed. The view that Christianity is a therapeutic science does not create a particular problem because I do not use the word science in the modern sense of the term as a branch of learning or intellectual activity or a systematic body of facts, but in its original meaning. The Greek word for science, episteme, derives from a verb meaning to know and has a variety of meanings in classical and patristic authors. Liddell and Scott's dictionary gives several meanings of episteme, including knowledge, acquaintance with a matter, experience, skill, and scientific knowledge, all of which meanings are shared by the English word science. So I use the word to denote particular, uh, to denote practical knowledge of healing, and I mean that the Orthodox Church strives through its theology and all its tradition to heal people spiritually, which means, which mainly means curing their ailing noose and passions. Orthodoxy is a revealed truth. It is not a discovery of man's rational faculty, but a revelation of God himself to the pure human heart. Thus, orthodoxy possesses practical knowledge of the method a person must follow to be healed. It is in this sense that I assert that orthodoxy, or theology, is a therapeutic science and treatment. To avoid the impression that I am innovating on this subject and creating my own terminology, I should explain that the term science as a true therapeutic method of life is mentioned in the writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite and other fathers who used the word to specify how we ought to prepare for communion and union with God and for exact knowledge of God. When St. Dionysius the Areopagite analyzes in his writings the degrees of spiritual perfection, purification, illumination, and perfection, he repeatedly uses the word science. Speaking about how perfection is achieved, he says, The sacraments of the Eucharist and chrismation provide a perfecting knowledge and science of the divine works. Elsewhere, when discussing the hierarchs who have experience of deification and also help others to achieve deification, he writes, The hierarchical order is that which possesses perfecting power to the full. Above all, it performs the perfecting rites of the hierarchy and initiates others by explaining the sciences of sacred things. In other words, St. Dionysius refers to the experience of deification and the whole life of deification, 
even the journey towards deification, as a science. In another passage, speaking of the work of the hierarchs and priests, he stresses that the hierarchical order is able not just to bring to perfection, but also skillfully to illuminate and purify, and the order of priests is empowered with the science of illuminating and purifying. St. Gregory of Nyssa also refers frequently to this subject. He speaks about therapeutic care, the therapeutic method, and the science of discerning between good and evil. St. Andrew of Crete also uses this term. In one of his homilies he writes, It was said to a theologian who spoke of holy things and was wisely and scientifically trained in the things of God. It is not sufficient for someone simply to know God. He must know him scientifically using the method possessed by the Orthodox Church. It is possible for someone to have a delusory knowledge of God that is not true and scientific if he did not use the appropriate scientific and therapeutic method. The first chapter of this part of the book interprets Canon 102 of the Quinisext Ecumenical Council, which includes the phrase, the science of spiritual medicine, used to define the method of healing man. This phrase has given the present book its title. I therefore use the expression therapeutic science with a different meaning from the sense in which our contemporaries use it. 6.3 Essential Clarifications A few brief clarifications will now be given which will show the difference between orthodox psychotherapy and any other western type of psychotherapy. The first point to clarify is that the word psyche or you as used in what in the west to form the first part of the compound words psychotherapy and psychology and psychoanalysis although derived from the Greek word for soul, does not mean soul in the sense used in Orthodox teaching. In the West, the word psyche refers mainly to man's psychological world. So to the Western term, psychotherapy denotes a method of dealing with people's mental and emotional disorders and behavioral problems, and could more appropriately be classified as a study of behavior or behavioral psychotherapy. Also, the term psychoanalytic therapy refers in the West to the method of dealing mainly with neuroses and other psychological illnesses by entering into a person's inner world in order that the psychological conflicts tormenting him within and without may be healed. By contrast, the word soul in Orthodox teaching means the spiritual element of man's existence, which is closely linked with the body and clearly denotes something that actually exists and represents the divine image and likeness. It is made up of many powers or faculties, including the noose and free will. This soul continues in existence even when it leaves the body, when the body dies. The second clarification is that there is a distinction and difference between psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy, and psychoanalysis. Psych psychiatry is a specialty branch of medical science, which is distinct from neurology but associated with it without being absolutely identified with it, and investigates the way in which the nervous system and the brain affect man's inner psychological world. Today, more than at any other period, there is a link and collaboration between psychiatry and neurology, since psychiatry undertakes the diagnoses and classification of mental illnesses, and relying on the basic research of neurological experts, attempts to correlate disorders in the function of the brain with various manifestations of psychopathological behavior and of course to make appropriate therapeutic interventions to the extent that this is possible.
Similarly, neurobiology uses this knowledge to deal with psychopathological behavior when it occurs in patients within its, its domain. Psychology is a branch of human sciences that studies how human beings function as, as expressed through their thinking, emotions, and behavior. Psychotherapy is a method of treating psychosomatic disorders by intervention in a, in a person's inner world without using drugs. Also, analytical psychotherapy or psychoanalysis is a method of attempting to explore someone's inner world on the basis of his words, actions, dreams, and fantasies. We referred above to the different kinds of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that, will pre that prevail in Western societies and which are introduced into Greece by various means. It ought, however, to be noted that many of these psychological and psychotherapeutic trends deny God and have a materialistic vision or else are linked with pseudo-religions or Eastern faiths. Most of these systems are not scientific as they cannot be interpreted using scientific data but un being unable to produce unambiguous objective scientific data as the exact sciences can. It is well known that science has certain objective principles and specific methodologies which apply to everyone and in every case and are based on experiment and observation. Objective scientific knowledge transcends individual convictions, nationality, and religion. These psychological systems do not fulfill these prerequisites or possess such data because on the one hand they are linked with the social, philosophical, and theological traditions of the West and on the other hand, every human being has something special about his personality and cannot be interpreted on the basis of objective scientific data. Of course, we ought to emphasize in particular that the science of psychiatry neurology has made great progress now in this respect. It has proved the influence of the brain and the biochemical processes that take place within it on the whole process of human development on various disorders such as schizophrenia, autism, Alzheimer's disease, and aggression, and even on people's emotional behavior. Another sort of psychiatry is now emerging called molecular psychiatry, as genes have been identified that appear to influence depression, aggression, and predisposition to drug addiction, and substances have already been isolated in the brain which are implicated in the activation of addiction to cocaine. Whereas the various psychological and psychoanalytical systems cannot be described as sciences in the strict sense of the term, psychiatry neurology is a science and benefits those suffering from dysfunctions of the brain or deterioration in its various centers, which affect the whole of a person's inner world, his behavior, even his body. The Orthodox Church has no reason to deny these scientific achievements. Unlike the various schools of psychology and psychoanalysis, orthodox psychotherapy has a specific anthropology and soteriology which are linked to Christology and the entire revelational truth and are distinct from other kinds of anthropology and soteriology, whether Western or Eastern. Also, orthodox psychotherapy is not just a method, but the life of the Church, including the sacraments and Christian asceticism. This asceticism ties in with orthodox hesychism and cures people of the passions 
in such a way that the passions, which are natural energies of the soul, follow their natural or supranatural course, and the person comes into communion with God and other people. 6.3 continued. The third point is that some researchers believe that every human being is born and grows up in a society with a particular culture, and this influences his whole personality and his social relationships. It follows that every culture and tradition has its own way of helping people, hence the emphasis nowadays on indigenous psychology. One single form of psychotherapy cannot suit everyone, as each person lives within a specific cultural tradition and needs to be approached in his own way. Also, the method of any particular type of psychotherapy is valid only within a specific historical and psychological tradition, so it is a problem if a particular type of psychotherapy has pretensions and claims outside its own traditions. The psychology and psychoanalysis that evolved in the West are mainly concerned with and directed towards people from an Anglo-Saxon background. Many problems arise if this knowledge is transferred to those living in different cultural environments, particularly orthodox ones, where there is an abundance of psychotherapeutic material as we see in the Philokalia, which sets out the hesychistic way of life. All these discoveries made in the Western world presuppose Western man with his distinctive ideas and living conditions. They cannot be transferred as they are to what we regard as the East, nor can they replace our own tradition. Experts recommend that each, pers each person should be treated within the cultural environment in which he grew up and lives. This also means that Westerners who are to receive orthodox psychotherapy ought to accept the entire way of life of the orthodox church and live in cultural environments where this orthodox method of healing souls is cultivated. Fourthly, I should clarify that almost all psychological and psychotherapeutic analyses, Viktor Frankl's logotherapy is an exception, are concerned with man's psychological aspect and see the problems that preoccupy people as primarily psychological and connected with their repressed experiences, emotions, and, and distortions, and the effects all this has on their lives. In the Orthodox Church, however, we maintain that the problems tormenting human beings are primarily ontological and existential. This means that they are not individual, psychological problems, and are not simply linked with the rights of the individual, but are problems of relationships and universal responsibility. They are connected with the illness of the noose, the unnatural action of the passions and ignorance of God. The main questions that concern people are, what is God? What is my relationship to Him? What is death and what is life? Why do I exist? What is the meaning of life? What is true freedom as my existence is given is a given fact? What defines my real relationship with other human beings living alongside me? How can I live in a society and still be myself? How does love fit in with freedom? And so on. These clarifications are essential for all those concerned with psychotherapeutic issues from either the scientific or the orthodox perspective and are necessary for the correct understanding of the subjects covered in this book. 6.4 Differences Between Humanistic and Orthodox Psychotherapy As has already become clear, orthodox psychotherapy is not the same as humanistic psychotherapy, just as theology is not the same as psychology. 
The term orthodox psychotherapy denotes the healing of the man's soul, its illumination and participation in the Holy Spirit, and this also has consequences for the body, with which it is closely linked. On the other hand, the term psychotherapy, from the humanistic point of view, denotes the healing of disturbances of behavior and personality with the help of various psychological methods. The difference between these two types of psychotherapy is clear with regard to the ontology of the soul psyche, its health, illness, and healing, and the distinction between created and uncreated things. We shall discuss these issues below. A. Ontology of the soul, psyche, and the psychotherapy. When I refer to ontology, I mean I do mean in the metaphysical sense, but in reality. The true meaning of light and life of the soul which is different from the body but closely connected with it. From reading various books on psychology, psychotherapy, and psychoanalysis, I have realized that most of them do not regard the soul psyche as having substantial existence. Consequently, contemporary humanistic psychotherapy has no ontology. The anthropology of contemporary psychotherapy, which originated in a Protestant or completely humanistic environment, differs in many respects from the anthropology of the fathers of the church. Although psyche means soul, in Greek the term psyche, as used by the psychologists and psychotherapists of the main schools, has nothing to do with the term soul, as understood by the Holy Fathers, who articulate the teaching and experience of the Orthodox Church. These issues have already been covered, but some further points will be set out below. With regard to the anthropocentric psychology developed and cultivated in the Western world, I think that what Father Philotheus Faros, who studied and practiced as a clinical psychologist in America, writes in his book, The Despair of the West and the Hope of the East, on the subject of healing from a scientific point of view is significant. In the chapter, The Myth of the Capabilities of Modern Medicine, he asserts that the idea that medical science can solve all the problems facing humankind is a myth. He writes characteristically, Two delusions of Western culture have contributed to the optimism about the capabilities of modern medicine. The first is the underlying dualistic perception of man in Western culture, and the second is the fundamental concept in Western culture that the solution to humanity's problems lies in the discovery of the right technique. These two delusions of Western culture led to the creation of mechanistic medicine, which looks upon illness as something mechanical, as a fault in the human mechanism, and which is therefore optimistic that sooner or later it will find a way to correct the technical fault. When we refer to dualism, or diarchy, from the anthropological viewpoint, we mean the theory that divides man into soul and body, matter and spirit, which are opposites and hostile to one another. Dualists despise the body, which they regard as something unclean that pollutes the soul. A particular form of dualism that regards man more as a body and a physical machine was cultivated by medical science in the West during the Enlightenment. In another chapter called The, the Pyrotechnics of Psychology and Psychiatry, the same writer analyzes in more detail how the discovery of psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy was regarded in the West. He writes, For a long time it was believed that psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy would succeed in, bringing, in bridging this gulf, 
and there was great enthusiasm about their potential to solve the contemporary problems tormenting humankind. The, th the psychotherapist in the West has replaced the priest. Thus, the psychotherapist reuni reunites in himself the artificial rift between psychiatry and religion. The psychotherapist has become the shaman, pagan priest and doctor of the Western world. The union seems unstable, however, so alternative solutions must be sought. In the West, psychotherapy promises a paradise to replace the Christian paradise and the paradise promised by commercial industrialization, and this paradise is attained through self-knowledge. The writer maintains that psychiatry in the West led man away from external reality into himself, himself alone, and left him there. It is unable to heal him effectively, so contemporary Western man has turned from psychotherapy to exorcism. There is, however, a fundamental error in the development of psychotherapy in the Western world. It is unable to give a defin definitive answer to the question of what is meant by the psychological health in which it is interested. According to the Western view of humanity, the health of the soul psyche has no ontology, as we shall see below. Thus, Father Philotheus Faros comments, What is health? And what is psychological health? The more Western psychiatry seeks a definition, the more it finds itself chasing a, a chimera, and in the end it realizes that it is suffering from the delusion that it can offer a cure for the human condition free from any sort of cultural tradition, values, or ideology, in the ecumenic spirit of psychological health. That is why in the West they are always searching for the reality beyond behind this concept. Western psychiatry increasingly recognizes that psychotherapy's ontological packaging is of critical importance for its relevance, effectiveness, and acceptance. And there are doubts about the value of moral health. A religious ideology is sought. Already, many religious ideologies are allied with a psychological health business. According to the writer, contemporary psychotherapy in the West is looking now for a link with ontology. It no longer believes in its autonomous status and its exclusive omnipotence. He writes, These are the most recent developments in the realm of psychology and psychiatry in the West. Here in Greece, however, the enthusiasm and optimism of the West 15 years ago for the capabilities of psychology and psychiatry have only just arrived, and we see the sad phenomenon of silent films being presented as the last word in cinematography, as well as a childish, childish confidence in the miraculous potential of psychological techniques that have already been forgotten in the West. Six point four continued. I have quoted these views of Father Philotheus Faros for three basic reasons. The first is that it must be understood that we cannot speak about psychotherapy without accepting that the soul psyche and its health have an ontology. Contemporary psychotherapy itself recognizes this shortcoming and attempts to remedy it in order to offer more effective help to people today. For that reason, I devoted a chapter in my book, Orthodox Psychotherapy, to setting out the teaching of the Church on the human soul. Man's soul is created in God's image, and just as God is triune, noose, word, and spirit, so the soul has noose, word, and spirit. The soul is sick when these faculties of the soul are sick, and healing the soul means healing these faculties. The human soul is an image of the image, 
It cannot be investigated apart from Christ the Word because it is the image of Christ, who is the image of the Father. The second reason is that it is impossible for a Christian who is familiar with patristic teaching to accept all the findings of modern anthropocentric psychoanalysis and psychotherapy exactly as they stand. There may well be similarities on some points, but there is a fundamental difference. Some people say that if the fathers had lived in our time, they would have accepted the views of modern psychology and psychoanalysis, just as they accepted the science of their own era. I do not think this is correct. Perhaps they would have accepted the views of neurology, psychiatry, as the nervous system is part of the human body, but not of anthropocentric psychology or psychoanalysis, for the precise reason stated above, because they have a different anthropology and no ontology. We cannot even state categorically that the Holy Fathers accepted the views of science of the science of their age, because the science of that time was linked with philosophy, particularly with metaphysics. They did, however, accept those scientific views that were not detrimental to the Christian faith. Nor can we go so far as to assert that the Fathers accepted the views of philosophy. They may have adopted some philosophical terms, but they gave them a different content. For instance, the meaning of the term person in classical philosophy is different from its meaning in patristic teaching. The Fathers did not hesitate to use many philosophical terms such as dispassion, essence, nature, hypostases, energy, and consubstantial in a different context to confront heretics who made excessive use of philosophy. They would have done the same with modern psychology and psychotherapy. They might have used some of its technical terms to enable them to enter into dialogue with our age, but they would undoubtedly have changed their meaning. This is clear from the fact that many saints today who have attained to theoria of the uncreated light and have frequent experiences of the vision of God are opposed to many views of contemporary psychology, psychotherapy, and psychoanalysis, and indeed assert that the indiscriminate use of the findings of modern psychology by many spiritual fathers is a serious delusion. The third reason is that unfortunately in Greece, we receive Western discoveries and research after a delay of several years. In the West, in our era, there is a noticeable tendency on the one hand to give priority to the science of neurology in comparison with psychology and psychoanalysis from the philosophical perspective. On the other hand, they study the niptic tradition of the Orthodox Church. 6.4 Continued Health of the Soul In Orthodox psychotherapy, I gave a thorough analysis of what actually constitutes the health of the soul. Many psychologists think that psych psychological health just means that someone has no inner psychological conflicts and is psychologically and socially balanced. The fewer psychological conflicts he has, the healthier he is. The subject of health, however, is not limited to this one point. It is true that a person who is not psychologically healthy will have psychological conflicts, but that is not where the problem lies. It is deeper and more fundamental. Human beings are rational. Having been created in the image of the Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and their spiritual health consists in being united with Christ, the image of the Father. They are then spiritually healthy. The powers of the soul are healthy when they function in a natural way, otherwise they are not. The natural impulse of the soul's powers is to move towards God and seek Him.
A number of fathers mentioned this point. In this brief analysis, I shall refer to St. Gregory Palamas and mainly St. Simeon, the new theologian. St. Gregory Palamas teaches that when a person attains to the theoria of God, when he sees God, he demonstrates that he is spiritually healthy. The sign that someone's soul is healthy is that he has been purified and reached theoria of God. According to St. Gregory Palamas, theoria is the only proof of a soul in good health. The virtues are our preventative medicine against the soul's illnesses, the unnatural impulses of its faculties. Theoria is the fruit of a healthy soul, an outcome and a state that deifies. This clearly shows the difference between the teaching of the Church and the teaching of modern psychology on the subject of health. St. Simeon the New Theologian refers to the same subject. He says that we beseech God, praying to be healed of our diseases, and when, little by little, from the top down, we strip off our illness like an old, torn, soiled garment and put on health like a radiant cloak over our whole body. We can then regard ourselves as serving the Lord. When he talks about the radiant cloak, he means not just physical health, but non-physical, sublime and noetic well-being. He writes characteristically, When you hear us calling the health of the soul a radiant cloak, do not laugh at the words out of ignorance, and do not suppose that we are speaking about physical health. We mean non-physical, divine, and noetic health, which does not result from medicines and herbs, nor from any works of our own, lest we should boast. This radiant health is above all the well-being of the soul, which neither medicines nor our own achievements can provide. We cannot acquire a healthy soul by means of ordinary medicines. St. Simon the New Theologian is categorical on this point, because the soul is not a faculty of the body, but has its own existence, its own essence and energy, having been created in the image of God. According to St. Simeon the New Theologian, health means, above all, dispassion, which is acquired through the action of God, but also through our own cooperation. By dispassion, we do not mean stoic impassibility or a negative state, but first and foremost that positive state when a person's soul is full of God's grace and the soul's faculties function naturally. In one of his poems, he is explicit. O soul-loving doctor, the only merciful God, who freely heals the sick and wounded, heal my bruises and wounds. Distill the oil of your grace, my God, and anoint my wounds, blot out my sores, completely heal and strengthen my paralyzed limbs. Make all my scars disappear, my Savior, and perfectly and completely restore me to health, as I was before, without defilement, bruises, festering wounds or blemishes, O oh my God, but with serenity and joy, peace and gentleness and holy humility and forbearing, the illumination of patience and good works, endurance and invincible power in all things. This brought me the great consolation of tears every day and exaltation in my heart, pouring out like an ever-flowing spring, a stream sweet as honey, a drink of gladness, that I constantly savored in the mouth of my noose. This is the source of all health and of purity, of cleansing from passions and idle thoughts, of the dazzling dispassion that becomes mine and is always with me. Understand this spiritually. You who read these words do not be wretchedly defiled, which ineffably brought me the pleasure of union 
and the boundless nuptial longing to be united with God. Through this communion, I have been freed from passion, consumed with delight, ablaze with longing, and I partook of the light, yes, and I became light, above all passion, beyond all evil. I have quoted this whole passage from St. Simeon, the New Theologian, because it demonstrates clearly how the saint understands the health of the soul. Perfect health is the result of the consolation that comes from tears and creates the essential preconditions for the longing for marriage of the person with Christ the Bridegroom. This marriage is the vision of the uncreated light and man's transforma transformation into light. According to the Holy Fathers, this constitutes the health of a man's soul, not just psychological equilibrium, as modern psychology teaches. If St. Simeon, the new theologian, were to be examined using contemporary psychological data, and if modern psychoanalysts were to study the above quotation, especially the references to tears and the pleasure of union with God, he would be regarded as psychologically ill, even though this is unmistakably an experience of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, St. Simeon, aware of his spiritual infirmity, which basically consists of not being able to see the uncreated light, beseeches God to heal him. But raise me up now, lift me up from the abyss, and set me upon the rock, O Christ, of your commandments, and show me again the light which the world cannot contain. Man's inability to see the light, his lack of vision of the uncreated light, is a spiritual illness and a spiritual abyss. Health, therefore, means above all, purification of the heart and illumination of the noose, and the fruit of a healthy soul is the vision of God as light. 6.4 Continued See the Illness of the Soul The above analysis, which indicates what the Holy Fathers mean by a healthy soul, also helps us to understand what is meant by the illness of the soul according to the teaching of the Fathers. When someone's soul is dominated by passions, which are mainly the unnatural impulses of the powers of the soul, and when he is unable to see God as light, he is spiritually ill. Basically, modern psychology, psycho psychoanalysis, and psychotherapy regard inner conflict or even repressed experiences and traumas from the past, which are stored in the so-called subconscious and cause various disturbances as an illness. For example, Freud divided the human soul psyche into three parts. The first is the conscious mind, which includes everything a person experiences at a given moment. The second part is the subconscious, which compromises of everything that a person has experienced in the past and is not thinking about at present, but which he can recall to his conscious mind whenever he wishes. The third part is the unconscious, in which various events, actions, and experiences remain which a person lived through in the past, but which he has repressed in the depths of his soul psyche in his unconscious. Although repressed, however, these things are active and want to return to the conscious mind. Everything that is forgotten or repressed in the unconscious cre creates problems in the soul psyche, but when it comes into the conscious mind, the person becomes calm and is healed. The psychoanalysis or psychotherapist helps in this process using a special method of psychoanalysis. The Holy Fathers, however, teach that the illness of the soul is not just a matter of repressed experiences that create inner conflicts, but the corruption of the powers of the soul, particularly the deadening and darkening of the noose. 
The noose does not see God or have communion with him, and when it becomes sick, it gives rise to all sorts of unhealthy states. All the natural faculties of the soul are damaged, and in this way the passions develop. Father John Romanides, referring to noetic prayer and man's noose, which when purified has unceasing remembrance of God, makes the following characteristic points. Quote, this whole subject under discussion is connected with the discovery by Europeans, for Europeans, through Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalyst followers of man's subconscious, and with the realization that man is more than just a mind. There are hidden aspects and experiences of man's understanding that under pressure from prevailing ethical and other rules and traditions of good behavior have been forgotten by the mind, but are latent in the subconscious and unavoidably influence his judgments, justifications, and actions. The subconscious, as understood by psychoanalysts, however, is seen as resulting from an abnormal psychological condition to be cured, at least initially by revealing and uncovering what is concealed. The impression given is that the subconscious, as psychi psychiatrists see it, actually consists of these hidden and forgotten guiding, natural, or implanted tendencies rather than being a faculty of the soul distinct from the rational faculty. Contrary to the view of contemporary psychoanalysts, in the orthodox tradition the noose becomes entangled with the rational faculty and the passions when it is in an abnormal or fallen state. It is, however, clearly distinct from the rational faculty when it functions as was intended by the energy and grace of God, and when the abnormalities concealed in human nature are revealed and healed. Psychiatrists believe that the subconscious, as a hidden collection of repressed natural tendencies contrary to moral and social principles, which cause them to be suppressed and forgotten, ought to be eliminated by setting these repressed natural tendencies free. In other words, psychoanalysis knows nothing about the distinction between the rational faculty and the noose, or the transformation of self-love into love free from self-interest through the illumination of the noose by means of noetic prayer. End quote. Illness, according to the Holy Fathers, is the deadening, death, and darkening of the noose. In this state, man's noose malfunctions. It is confused and misidentified with the rational, rational faculty, the passions, and its environment. This anomaly is the cause of all so-called psychological problems. Contemporary secular psychologists and psychoanalysts do not have an accurate knowledge of this state and are therefore unable to understand people's real problems. According to St. Simeon the New Theologian, unless man's soul is activated by the All-Holy Spirit, which is the soul of our soul and the noose of our noose, it is dead. He writes, quote, as it is impossible for our body, whether or not it is ill, to move or even live without a soul, so the soul, whether it sins or not, is dead and completely incapable of living eternal life without the Holy Spirit. End quote. This passage of St. Simeon's is highly significant. It clearly shows that the soul is sick when the Holy Spirit is absent. There is also another important point. Even though someone may not sin without the Holy Spirit, he is dead or ailing. Thus, in the Orthodox tradition, even if someone is psychologically balanced, 
and has no internal conflicts. Without the Holy Spirit, he is nevertheless ill and dead. According to St. Simeon the New Theologian, it is not just those with psychological conflicts who are ill, but principally those who have the devil living within them, who is the evil treasure. It is, not simp- it is not simple thoughts and memories from the past which the mind was unable to classify or which is, it has forgotten or rep- and repressed, but the presence of the evil spirit, the presence of a personal being which creates all this abnormality. The sickness of the soul signifies something completely different in the writings of the fathers from its meaning in modern psychology and psychotherapy. 6.4 Continued section D, healing the soul. Having considered the health and illness of the soul, we can also now look at the healing of the soul as it is understood in the Orthodox tradition. Healing the soul means first and foremost reviving and illuminating the noose. It is not merely a matter of discovering suppressed experiences. St. Diodokos of Photiki writes, Only the Holy Spirit can purify the noose. Only when he who is powerful comes into the soul can he set it free. The noose is revived through the energy of divine grace, but also with man's cooperation. God acts and man collaborates. We shall now look at some ways of healing the noose which are different from the methods indicated by modern psychotherapy. It was first mentioned in a previous chapter that Barlaam asserted that sanctity and perfection could not be found without logical distinctions, reasoning, and analysis. St. Gregory Palamas responded that this view was a heresy of the Stoics and Pythagoreans. We are healed, on the contrary, when our noose is made free of conceit and evil by means of diligent repentance and intense asceticism. Barlaam was obviously influenced by the psychological view of Augustine. St. Gregory the Theologian reproaches those who try to heal their souls by taking medicines, Someone suffering from an illness of the nervous system can certainly take medication on the advice of a specialist to help the body, but he cannot heal the illness of the noose in this way. What ordinary medicine can bring the Holy Spirit into our soul? The only saving medicine is the grace of Christ. St. Gregory says, Why do you seek for drugs which will do no good? Heal yourself before it becomes urgent. Have pity upon yourself the only true healer of your disease. Apply to yourself the truly saving medicine. End quote. The saving and necessary medicine for the soul's illness is Christ. If you receive all the word, you will bring upon your own soul all the healing powers of Christ, by which separately each one of the sick people mentioned in the gospel was healed. St. Simeon, the new theologian, addresses the same issue. I have already mentioned his teaching that the soul cannot be healed by medicines, but only by the action of the divine grace. Here I shall describe some ways in which, according to the teaching of St. Simeon, the new theologian, the noose, deadened by sin, can be healed. God, he says, is fire, and in those in whom this fire is kindled, quote, it rises up into a great flame and reaches to the heavens and it does not allow the one thus set alight to be idle or rest at all. End of quote. This action of the fire takes place with perception and awareness and in the beginning unbearable pain. However, once the soul has been cleansed from the passions, it becomes food and drink, illumination, 
and uninterrupted joy within us, and by participation makes us light ourselves. Those who have received this fire of divine grace have not only been completely delivered from all illnesses of the soul, but have also freed many others whose souls were sick and ailing from the devil's nets, healed them and presented them as gifts to Christ the Lord. They learnt every sort of knowledge and skill from this fire. It is only when God's grace catches fire in our heart that we are delivered from all our soul's diseases. Even more importantly, once we have been healed, we are able to heal others. How can we cure people unless we have learnt the science and art of healing from the effect of the fire on our own soul? Only true repentance through confession and tears purifies the wound and the scar that the sting of death has made in the heart. Then it casts out and kills the worm nesting, nestling in it and restores the wound to complete healing and perfect health. These wounds are cured by those who strive with repentance, confession, and tears, whereas the others actually take pleasure in these wounds. This all-embracing penitence comes about through the action of the Holy Spirit and those living within the church. Those who lack such repentance preserve their soul's wounds instead of curing them. Only profound repentance turns all psychological problems into spiritual states and heals our soul. Thus, St. Simeon turns to God and seeks healing from Him. Quote, I went far away, lover of mankind, and dwelt in the wilderness, and hid from you, my sweet Lord. I was benighted by the cares of this life, and suffered many stings and blows as a result. I return bearing many wounds in my soul, and cry out in my pain and the distress of my heart, Have mercy, have pity upon me, a transgressor. End of quote. When we say that the fire of divine grace sets a person free and heals his diseased noose, we mean someone who is within the Orthodox Church and receives guidance from a deified spiritual father. Spiritual fathers have passed through all these stages and therefore have power to heal. Our faith in the possibility of being healed, along with the knowledge of the priest who is healing us, can bring us to life. St. Gregory the Theologian says clearly, Quote, for since in order for healing to take place, there is need of both faith in the patient and power in the healer. When one of the two is missing, the other is impossible. End of quote. And at the same time, he emphasizes that healing is not reasonable in the case of those who would afterwards be injured by unbelief. That is why a healing priest who has an accurate knowledge of spiritual illness knows what spiritual health is and how to lead someone towards it, can, can help to heal sick souls. 6.4 Continued Section E The Distinction Between Created and Uncreated When the Holy Fathers study what happens within the human soul, they teach that these things are due to various causes. Three basic ones are identified here. The first includes physical problems, stimulation of the imagination, and the unnatural function of all the powers of the soul. The second is an attack from the devil, who transforms himself into an angel of light, according to the Apostle Paul. No doubt the devil is also at work in the first case, with thoughts and other ploys, but sometimes he takes the form of an angel, a saint, the mother of God, or Christ himself. 
The third cause is the energies of divine grace. Many expressions of true prayer, spiritual love, and other spiritual states result from the presence of divine grace in man's heart. Modern psychology seems to attribute all kinds of conflicts to repressed experiences and the states of the unconscious. It does not refer to the existence of the devil in his actions and cannot even accept the working of divine grace. We therefore observe the phenomenon that modern psychology attributes many actions of divine grace, such as contrition, tears, and so on, to pathological states, emotional excitement, or nervous disorders. Thus some people have written that St. Simeon the New Theologian, who experienced many divine visions, was psychologically ill. The Holy Fathers, however, make a clear distinction between these causes. They know when a certain type of behavior is the result of physical exhaustion and the effect of passions, when it is the work of the devil, and when it is the action of divine grace. Quote from Father John Romanides, For the Fathers, the basic criterion for the vision of the uncreated or true light of Christ's glory and divinity is precisely the fact that his illumination comes from within. The basic distinguishing characteristic of the light of delusion or the devil is that it only illuminates from outside, that it remains separate, and that being created, it is not without shape, form, or color. End of quote. A vision that acts from within and is, and is without form or color is theoria of the uncreated light. A vision that acts from without and has form and color is satanic. There are other visions that do not fit into either of the above categories, but are figments of an overheated imagination, hallucinations, and illusions. Spiritual fathers who have the grace of God are able to recognize all these states with certainty and are therefore able to make a correct diagnosis and apply the correct treatment. It is clear that contemporary psychologists, psychoanalysts, and psychotherapists who undertake their work in an anthropocentric way and wish to ignore the presence and working of Satan as well as the energy of God and who do not have the spiritual gift of discerning created things from uncreated fail in their attempt really to heal people on the ontological level. This does not mean that we ignore human attempts to provide people with psychological support and treatment for their various disorders. In any case, not everybody is a member of the church or believes in God. There are also members, also some members of the church, both clergy and lay people, who are unaware of the whole orthodox therapeutic method that the church possesses and live a very underdeveloped ecclesiastical life. Humanistic psychology, psychoanalysis, and psychotherapy can help someone to become psychologically and socially stable, but it definitely cannot lift him above the human level and lead him to deification as the Orthodox Church wishes to. The same applies here to, as well to society as a whole. If, if we all observed God's will, there would be no social problems, and social systems and ideologies would be unnecessary. However, because not everyone believes in God and does His will, social systems exist which keep the balance between conflicting forces in society. Civil authority is essential in societies after the fall in order to create the necessary preconditions for human beings to survive. When what is perfect comes, what is partial will pass away. The same happens with humanistic methods 
of healing people in comparison with orthodox psychotherapy. There is consequently a great difference between orthodox psychotherapy and anthropocentric or humanistic psychotherapy. According to orthodox teaching, the human soul is not simply an energy, but is in the image of God and is closely linked with the body. The purpose of man is to progress from being in the image of God to being in his likeness. Being in God's likeness actually means man's deification, and the soul's good health consists precisely in this. Illness of the soul is not a matter of psychological conflicts, but the darkening of the noose. The healing of the soul does not mean psychological equilibrium, but the illumination of the noose. This healing cannot be achieved by means of ordinary medicines, but through the advent of God's grace in the heart. Then death is overcome, and as a result we are freed from anxiety, insecurity, and fear. The Church's hesychistic method, together with keeping Christ's commandments, is the route by which divine grace comes and unifies the broken soul. Part 1, Chapter 7, Psychosomatic Illnesses the difference between orthodox theology and anthropocentric or humanistic psychotherapy, psychology, and psychoanalysis was identified in previous chapters. Here, to complete this part of the book, four kinds of psychosomatic illnesses will be discussed. It ought to be noted that the term psychosomatic illness is not used here in the usual medical sense to denote illnesses such as asthma, ulcers, or states of anxiety but in the theological sense to mean illnesses affecting both soul and body. Man is a psychosomatic being. He is made up of a soul and a body, which are closely connected to each other and influence one another. This means that illnesses of the soul affect the body as well, and illnesses of the body also have an effect on the soul. Thus, there are spiritual illnesses of the soul, psychological emotional illnesses, neurobiological illnesses, and physical illnesses. There may also be mutual interaction between them, which it sometimes requires great discernment and wisdom to detect, as spiritual illnesses of the soul act on the psychological and biological level. Psychological illnesses influence a person in many different ways, and physical illnesses can cause psychological problems and possibly even spiritual ones. There are, however, cases in which illnesses are not influenced by one another. I shall briefly analyze these four types of illnesses. The first category covers spiritual illnesses of the soul. When I used the title Orthodox Psychotherapy for my book, I was mainly thinking of these illnesses, which disrupt a person's relationship with God and cause turmoil in his whole psychosomatic organism. According to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, when a person's noose is darkened, he cannot have a personal spiritual relationship with God and becomes seriously ill. A person who does not have noetic prayer, a sign that he does not have personal communion with God, is spiritually ill. Father John Romanides refers to this spiritual illness of the soul. Quote, In the patristic sense, every human being is a psychopath. A person does not need to be a schizophrenic in order to be a psychopath. From the patristic standpoint, the definition of a psychopath is that anyone whose noetic faculty is not functioning correctly is suffering from this disorder of the soul, that is to say, when his noose is full of thoughts, not just bad thoughts, but also good ones. End quote. 
His noose is sick because it is far from God and becomes either demonic or bestial, as St. Maximus the Confessor and St. Gregory Palamas say. This state might not show itself physically, but such a person is ill with regard to God. There are many passages in the Bible and the Fathers which describe this condition. Although I do not refer to them here, they will be cited in other parts of the book. Man's struggle consists in uncovering his noose, which is entangled now with his rational faculty and his passions, in acquiring the gift of noetic prayer, and in ascending even higher to deification and theoria of the uncreated light. Then he becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells and he attains personal communion with God, which is his salvation. Therefore, in my book entitled Orthodox Psychotherapy, when I used this term, I mainly had in mind man's spiritual illness. Also, much of what was written in the book is, so to speak, preventative medicine. It shows what we ought to do to avoid falling ill. There are chapters about spiritual illness of the soul. For example, the chapter Orthodox Pathology and the section on thoughts, Logismo, refer to the healing of man's soul. There are also sections throughout the book which describe the healing of the soul, the heart, the rational faculty, the noose, and so on. I insist on the subject of thoughts because I consider thoughts to be a major cause of illness, whereas healed thoughts assist in healing the soul. The commandments of Christ play an important role in preventing people from becoming ill and in healing them after they have fallen sick. These commandments regulate the three parts of the soul and make them healthy. The commandments on fasting, vigil, and prayer are emphasized. But Christ's commandments have a wider scope because they concern humility, penitence, patience, and so on. Discerning spiritual physicians give appropriate instructions. They know in each case what needs to be applied to achieve salvation, as something that acts as a medicine for one person can be a poison to another. Chapter 7 continued. Apart from spiritual illnesses of the soul, there are psychological illnesses, which affect a person's psychological world, with the result that his social behavior is also influenced. Psychology is concerned with these matters, but each school of psychology has a different way of dealing with the problems that arise and differs in many respects from the orthodox teaching. Psychological illnesses arise either from disorders in a person's inner world, in his thoughts, his conscience, feelings of guilt, emotions, or else from a mishandling of family or social problems. They can, however, also result from an inability to cope with physical illnesses. This category includes cases connected with maltreatment, suffered by a person in infancy, childhood or adolescence, difficulties encountered in the social and family environment, and problems arising from various traumatic experiences in the past and from many other causes. It is also significant that so-called Molecular psychology is being developed nowadays. In former times, when the way that families and societies were organized meant that certain principles existed, such as love and concern for other people, and most importantly, when the ecclesiastical way of life was more developed and the experience of the Greek Orthodox tradition permeated people's lives, all these psychological problems were dealt with. Unfortunately, the individualistic lifestyle has cultivated many such unhealthy psychological states. Once the communal and ecclesiastical way of life was lost, people were left without assistance, 
and many of them resort to psychologists and join various therapeutic groups and therapeutic communities in order to find consolation and help from a scientific approach. In other words, what was accomplished in the past through the tradition as a whole, specialists who study these issues now seek to achieve. When a person is willing to live in the church in an organized ecclesiastical community, a parish or monastery, which functions according to the correct ecclesiastical prerequisites, and when he accepts guidance from an experienced spiritual father, he can be helped appropriately to face these inner conflicts and to transform anxious states into spiritual concerns, unless they have affected his body, in which case medical assistance is also required. In any case, the niptic tradition of the Church, which speaks about dealing with thoughts, healing the passions, and establishing equilibrium in the inner emotional world, heals all this disorder in the psychological and emotional realm. Someone who really lives in the domain of the Church, with the sacraments and the ascetic life, under the guidance of a spiritual father, is healed of these psychological states. There is also a category of neurobiological illnesses, which are connected with the human biological structure and relate to disorders of the central and peripheral nervous system. Nowadays, many of the illness, illnesses which, with which psychiatry is concerned, such as psychoses and schizophrenia, are regarded as having a biological basis. The causes of these illnesses include hereditary and environmental factors. These illnesses have increased for various reasons in our time. The science of neurology, which is developing nowadays, helps to deal with these illnesses. Patients suffering from these illnesses may follow appropriate instructions from neuro neurologists and psychiatrists, as various drugs need to be provided which check the biochemical processes in the brain and the whole nervous system. It ought to be mentioned here that in the past there was a specialist field of neurology, psychiatry, but now it has been split. Thus, neurologists are concerned with purely neurological disorders such as strokes, multiple sclerosis, and other related diseases, and refer patients suffering from depression and other disorders with a biological basis to psychiatrists or psychologists. At the same time, such patients ought also to accept with discretion the therapeutic treatment of the Church, which consists of its sacramental and ascetic life, since neurological illnesses influence the realm of a person's soul as well. Chapter 7 continued. Pastoral experience has shown that it is enough for some of these patients to take psychiatric drugs in order to be able to live a balanced life in the community, to be able to move around and work to a satisfactory degree. They are also helped not to become aggressive or self-destructive and thus can remain integrated within the community. There are, however, cases in which incorrect use of psychiatric drugs may change a person's personality. At the same time, spiritual help is needed to give meaning to a person's life. Therapeutic drugs are not a panacea in every respect because man is not a biological machine but has a soul as well. Nevertheless, when patients in these cases live within the church and in parallel with the treatment provided by medical science, also make use of the therapeutic means that the Orthodox Church has at its disposal, they derive great benefit. Most illnesses are physical, when various parts and organs of the human body are sick. It is possible for these illnesses to affect a person on the psychological and spiritual level, with the result that he loses his faith in God, is disappointed, and destroys his relationships with other people. 
Others who believe in God face these physical illnesses in a positive manner. According to the fathers of the church, for someone to be physically ill and to praise God is a sign of spiritual health. The ascetic fathers stress many aspects of this subject. According to St. Diodocus of Photiki, patience in life's trials and thanksgiving for misfortunes is a second form of martyrdom. Then illness will be reckoned by God as martyrdom, and the sick person will receive a martyr's crown. According to Christ's word, quote, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. End quote. Matthew 10.22 Often a physical illness is permitted by God for our spiritual purification. St. John Climacus mentions that there are illnesses to cleanse us from our sins and illnesses to humble our mind. Only those with discernment can make a correct diagnosis. For that reason, St. John Climacus recommends us not to try to discern why a person has fallen sick because we may be mistaken, criticize him, and make an unjust judgment. We accept illness with patience and praise to God. We know that physical illnesses have a purifying character. St. Isaac the Syrian emphasizes that patience in life's trials creates spiritual health. Spiritual health brings knowledge of God. Knowledge of God creates love for Him, and this love for God is stronger than life. Patience is of great value, but so is obedience to God's providence. If a person's life has meaning and his soul is healthy, he is not tormented psychologically, even if his body has fallen sick for various reasons. If it is God's will that we suffer from an illness for a long time, through our patience and our gratitude to God, we become martyrs and receive a martyr's crown. In fact, we may receive an even greater crown than the martyrs, because they endured many sufferings for a short period of time, whereas we suffer our whole life long. However, patience and thanksgiving to God are needed. We briefly looked above at the four kinds of illnesses, spiritual illnesses of the soul, psychological, neurobiological, and physical illnesses. As we said before, there is obviously mutual interaction between them, but they can also act independently of each other. This depends on the spiritual maturity of the person. A person may be spiritually ill since his noose is wounded and dark, but he may be physically healthy. It is even possible for someone to be physically, psychologically, and neurobiologically sick and for his noose to function well, in which case he is healthy from the spiritual point of view. It depends on the way in which he lives, on his relationship with God and other people, and the degree of his ecclesiastical life. Spiritual health is the most important thing. Physical, psychological, and neuro neurobiological illness should not distress us as much as illness of the soul, because it is possible, as we mentioned, for the body to be ill and the soul to be well. Someone who was ill once said to me, quote, I am not concerned about my body being in pain. What concerns and grieves me is my lack of spiritual health. I do not deal with things correctly. I am anxious inside. I do not have communion with God, end quote. Someone else told me, quote, I feel love for God and physical illness does not concern me, end quote. A person in good spiritual health has good thoughts, handles all problems in the right way, obeys God and his spiritual fathers, and is not overwhelmed by despair, although he feels that he is sinful. People suffering from psychological and neurobiological illnesses ought to receive spiritual help from a good spiritual father, 
who is familiar with the hesychistic method of the Orthodox Church, and medical help from a good doctor, either a psychiatrist or neurologist, according to the circumstances, who will offer assistance in therapeutic drugs and will also refer them, if necessary, to a psychologist. In the case of both the spiritual father and the medical expert, God's help should be sought for a good diagnosis of the illness and the correct handling of the patient over and above personal expertise and the conclusions of science. In this way, the good collaboration between spiritual fathers and doctors will be even more effective. The parts of the book that follow will identify many aspects of the spiritual illness of man's soul and its healing as we encounter it throughout the scriptural and patristic tradition of the Orthodox Church. End of part one, Orthodox and Humanistic Psychotherapy.